everyone, and welcome to the Australian Herpticulture Podcast. I'm your host, Jason. And my name's Luke. And so, tonight we have a our first guest. Should we introduce him? Not that he really needs an introduction. Everyone probably knows who he is. So tonight we got on Scott Iper. How you going, mate? Yeah, good, fellas. How you going? Good, good. Good. Oh, man, this is going to be an exciting night. We've already been here sitting around chatting for... Better part of 40 minutes now, so uh, yeah. should have hit record at the start, it would have been a cracker already. So, <laughs> would have been too long That's for everyone the... at home. Oh, I heard that was the OnlyFans component, but yeah, so oh, right, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, make a killing, make a killing. Uh, we've got, we've got, got a face for radio, up. so we've yeah, all got heads for radio, to OnlyFans, yeah. I, I reckon exactly. you could still start a thing, you know, maybe get the Vaso out on your forehead or something, Jason. Mm-hmm. Polish it up, be good. There'd be someone into that for sure, I reckon. Yeah, see how you go there. Yeah. So, what you been up to, Luke? Plumber and a and a a vet person walk into a bar, mate, and it's the start of a joke, isn't it? So, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) exactly. (laughs) Anyway, yeah, Yeah, mate. Nothing much has changed here. I'm just been painting up my enclosures, putting a few leafy enclosures together, which has been good fun, keeping me entertained. But uh, nice. yeah, nothing else is too much out of the out of the ordinary. Actually, I did um, get inspired from Scott to go and pick up a whole bunch of Grid Connect products from Bunnings the other day. So spent spent too much money there on hopefully automating a bit of my my reptile gear at home. So that should be pretty exciting, especially for when I get pinned on a hot day or something like that and forgot to turn the lights off at home. Then it'll be nice to be able to be at work and go oh shit and quickly flick them off and know my animals are going to be safe. So yeah, bit of fun. Looking forward to so setting it up. Unreal. It's pretty awesome stuff. It's really easy to set up. I mean, if a plumber like me can set it up, you know, you guys will be fine. So um, at the end of the day, though, look, it's you follow, if you jump on the YouTube, you can look it up on, on YouTube. It'll give you the quick instructions. But as long as you've got a decent Wi-Fi connection, it's it's really simple. And, you know, for us, you know, we, we got put onto it by Herpo down in Melbourne. Um, well, he's... Well, right now, um, Adam Elliott and Adam was telling me about it, and I thought, oh, I'll give it a run, see what it's like. And the timers and stuff like that. So just the the, the timer systems, they're a higher wattage than your normal timers, and they're cheaper. So it's yeah. fifteen bucks for one of their plugs that you can set up as a timer, have it come on and off as many times as you like. And I think it's three thousand watts in in power versus your normal ones, which are twenty six hundred watt, and you have a bloody power outage or something like that and you're having to pull the timer out, change it around, manually do it, this is all digital. And so between using that and having ways that you can just manually override things nice and easily, but you can set it up with alarm systems and because it's got a temperature sensor that and a hydrometer, hydrometer as well, it'll do recordings for you so you can track your rooms or track an enclosure or, or whatever. Um mm. But then you can have it so it sends you alerts through your Wi-Fi. So it'll send you a, a message alert straight to your phone on the app, say temperature has reached X or temperature has reached below below this, which means that if you have a, a thermometer, a thermostat fail, you can manually override and actually turn heating off or turn cooling on or, or whatever, however you've got it plugged in. So yeah, um, I don't use it in... 
as a alternative to thermostats or anything like that. Thermostats obviously yeah, your primary definitely. primary measure, but these are a really good backup. And you know, there's been a couple of times that oh shit, the room's got to 29 degrees. Why is it at 29 degrees? If it's at 29 degrees, has something failed? Has the air conditioner yeah. failed to come on or or what? It may not mean that. I can do anything to cool the room back down again, but it might mean that I can turn off any auxiliary heating and not kill everything else in the room until I can get home or whatever. See, I didn't even know um, these things existed, and I'm a sparky. So, Because, I mean, Arlex like a Bunnings brand, so I I don't usually shop at Bunnings for electrical products, but, yeah, the the stuff that these things can do is unreal. I'm definitely going to get some, I think, and sell my stuff with them, so... I originally got one of the power boards a little while ago for my my reef aquarium here at home, and uh, I hooked it up so it actually talked to my, I don't know what it's called. It's like a little Google thing that basically you can just yep. tell it to do whatever. And it was just because I was getting too lazy, actually bending down and getting my head in the sump and you know turning bits of equipment and stuff off. So I could go, hey Google, turn off protein skimmer. Hey Google, turn off wave maker, whatever. And it was just really good to have that all automated. Um, so mm. yeah, anyway, I. I decided you know what i think this thing would make better use downstairs and took it down and i've already started it up on the the kind of main exoterra wall that i've got down there and just being able to just have like the uv on one channel and then like the heating on another so you can still play around with like your heat cycles versus your daylight cycles and stuff like that it's mm-hmm. just kind of giving it a full different aspect to actually reptile keeping now i'm really excited for it and yeah as, as scott said you know you've got the humidity sensor and the temperature sensor as well so i made sure to go and buy the what do they call it, like the hub or whatever, so you can connect yeah. all those other bits and pieces up to it. So, yeah, it's, this is a big rabbit hole for me, I think. <laughs> I think a few pages yeah, are going to go through this stuff. The thing is, though, it's, it's, it is reasonably affordable too. It's not yeah. it's not ridiculously overpriced. And, yeah. you know, you can use that one hub as long as it's those temperature sensors are Bluetooth. So as long as you're within about 12 metres of your hub, you can have three or four sensors that will run off the one hub without an issue, yep. you just label each one. Now, where it's going to be a real benefit is, we haven't done it yet, but that's, that's on the cards, is that we're going to set up another hub in the snake building itself as opposed to on the outside, and we're going to use that for have three or four roaming temperature sensors that we won't actually adhere to anything, but we'll put those in enclosures so we can mm-hmm. run that in an enclosure for a week and just get a bit of an idea of what's going on in there. We'll have a couple that are set up inside incubators permanently. So one yeah. inside an egg box permanently, and that way that we can have that every two minutes of sending us a, a reading. You can then track it all the way through. You can export the um, the graphs. So you can actually get a temperature graph and a humidity graph for your eggs all the way through your incubation. Um, That's right. handy. So for people that like data, that might yeah. be a um, – might be a really interesting way. Obviously, the, you know, the how accurate they are, you know, it, it is a, a relatively low-cost product, so you're probably going to have a discrepancy of about 10%. Um, yeah. But at the same time, as long as you're not incubating it right on the upper limits, I don't think you're going to have too many issues. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. See, I didn't even think about the incubation side of it either. I was just more thinking about, like, my room temperature as a whole, but that's just giving me a whole new thing to kind of go down there i'm i'm hoping to potentially get my first clutch of green tree pythons this year so 
I guarantee you if those things go in the incubator, I'm going to be putting one of those temperature sensors in there with them. Yeah. Well, you want to know that you want to know the thing that's 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 really scary, and I haven't got one yet, but I've, I've been looking at it. Is they've yeah, got go video cameras that go into it as well, so you can have it. <laughs> so the video camera, so you can set it up so it's mobile. It's a, a high definition movement orientated thing, so you'll be able to set those up on little stands in front of enclosures. So yep. if you've got something that you think is going to be laying, and I'm thinking things like um, spotted tree monitors and things like that, they're a little bit shy around people. They're going to habituate very quickly to a little white white box with a black dot in the centre as opposed to this big primate walking past. Um, yep. So then you're probably going to have a better idea of, A, where they're test digging. So rather than... You know, in one of your enclosures that you spend so long trying to get your bioactive set up right, you might actually be able to see where the females are actually laying their eggs so you can only destroy one part of that enclosure as opposed to the whole thing when you're searching yeah, I would have for loved eggs. that when I had my chameleon geckos. I would have been unreal because I didn't see any matings. I didn't see anything because as soon as you walked in the room, they'd freeze. Oh, I've got a I feeling it's not this. I've got a feeling it's an IR function on it as well. So you can have it so it's in pitch black so you can actually observe them in the dark. Yeah, that'd be unreal. I've been doing that for a couple of years now. I've actually, it's not a Grid Connect product, but I do have a little camera that's Wi Fi compatible that I have been kind of sticking in front of enclosures and it is, um, yeah, infrared as well. So I've been spying on green tree pythons trying to see if they are mating at night without me, you know, doing bits and pieces. Mm. So I could be nice and cozy here in bed and still watching them and, seeing what they're up to and, and whatnot. But, uh, yeah. Snake I, one while you're in bed, mate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I also used to use it for, for Loki, my mangrove monitor, for the first like 12 to 18 months of owning him. I never saw him eat in front of me, you know, so I'd be able to have that camera there, quickly dump some food in there or whatever and log into the camera and walk out of the room and see him come and sneak out and grab a few bits here and there or whatever like that. So it was good to yeah. make sure that he was actually eating. I think it would be really handy to... So for things like uh, interspecific aggression as well. So if you think that there's a an animal, if you've got multiple animals, and you know, we used to keep a, a a fairly large group of water skinks in together in a in a large enclosure, we had six water skinks in there, and you know you always have those ones that are always a problem. It'd be really nice to be able to work out which exactly is the one that's initialising that interspecific yeah. aggression and things like that, so you could pull that one as opposed to having to redo all the whole hierarchy in, in enclosures. I think some yeah. of the Agurnia are a bit like that too, the Lyophilus as well. The, you know, we had Margaritae and you know, the Margaritae that we used to breed, we had no dramas and then we put an extra male in to get some different blood. What a nightmare that was because it ended up just throwing all the hierarchy out and then, then trying to work out which one was the problem was a, was a real pain oh, in the ass. So, yeah. You know, yeah, well, that's the thing when you cohab animals is there's always a hierarchy. So you having that would be so handy to see which one's the one causing all the issues. So, but a lot of those dragons sitting on top of each other is really cute, <laughs> and they love each other. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, that black beard's telling you how much they really love each other too, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can't rag on dragon keepers. Can't rag no. on dragon keepers. I mean, they, are, they do make good pets. Really, I've got one here. Yeah, I had one years ago, and it was yeah, it was a yeah, 
basically used to sit on my missus' shoulder like it was a cat. Yep. So, so which year reckon's one. a better pet, a, a blue tongue or a bearded dragon? Hmm. Hard hitting questions on the Australian reptile yeah. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I actually like a blue tongue personally for a first reptile pet over a bearded dragon. I think um, hundred for for a kid, hundred percent blue tongue. Yeah. I think yeah, same here. I think it's because they were always like I grew up with blue tongues in the yard. I never kept them, but I, they were always in my yard. So I just think they're so much hardier. You know, as far as diet and stuff goes, you, you're not having to deal with so many bugs. You can kind of have a few more commonly things that you can get from a supermarket and feed them that quite easily. Yeah, um, that's true. You know, not that you should, but if your UV kind of lacks out and you've got an expired globe or whatever like that they're not going to go on the fritz super quick you know they're pretty good like that so yeah i, I find them all around pretty hardy i'd much suggest much rather suggest a blue tongue for a first reptile keeper as a pet than a beauty mm. i think blue tongues are bulletproof i think they're yeah. so much better to keep than bearded dragons and they live for longer you know I, I you know i think they're I, I personally think that they're a much better animal than to, from a husbandry point of view for a young kid than a bearded dragon. Um, yeah. Love beardies too. And beardies have got that look, you know, that dinosaur. Yeah, exactly. Type look that kids are always wanting. But, you yeah. know, I think the blue tongues are, you know, they're a little bit slower too. I think that's the other thing about bearded dragons. Sometimes they can be a little bit quick at times for, for little kids, whereas blue tongues are usually pretty chilled out. So Yeah, they just kind of stay still compared to some beardies just as soon as you open that enclosure, I think you've got food and they're out the door. So Mind you, our Kimberleys will chase me around the room. <laughs> Man, they're unreal. I love Kimberleys. How, speaking about kids and, and uh, reptiles, I'll just have a quick segue here. Is there any more updates mm. on your Spinosaurus project there, Nate? Oh, no, nah, nothing at the moment. Oh, I've, I've got an enclosure coming. Should be next week. So I'll hopefully go down to the expo and check out the expo and yep. see how we go with that. So. That's pretty yeah, exciting. Pretty At least you got that under the works. Yeah. So do a nice little setup and yeah, we'll go from there. But so are you gonna put in spare bears or Lophosaurus or what are you putting in there? Ah, uh, some boids. Yeah, Lophosaurus. Boids. So yeah. I yeah, I cause I the the um angle heads are just in the bush up the road too. So I if I want to see them, I can just go in the bush and have a quick squeeze, take some pictures, but I've always loved the boys, and my little fella loves dinosaurs. So every time I show him pictures of them, he thinks they're dinosaurs. So I thought if I get some of them, that's something we can do together. Go down, feed the dinosaurs, you know. So he's obsessed with dinosaurs. And Scott just sent through a photo of one of those guys in the wild as well, didn't he? I think we got yeah. that. Yeah, I did. I sent one through before. That was an amazing yeah. photo. It's it's kind of handy to have a shot like that because we're both about to build a Boyd's enclosure. So having something <laughs> yeah. like that is kind of handy to go, oh, okay, how do we replicate this? Exactly. Uh, that's an awesome one. Have you guys ever been bitten by Boyd's? Never. Yep. Yeah, they suck. Yeah. I can't believe how sharp these things are. Um, I'll tell you what, if something's going to bite someone, it's going to bite me. I, I'm like everything's just attracted to biting me. I've gone to people's houses; they've had snakes, and they're like, "Oh, this thing never bites." As soon as I put my hand on it, turns around, and bites me on the hand. So I'm sure right. I'll know soon. I've been bitten by every Australian python bar one. Op bar no. one. Op. 
iPhone is the only one that hasn't got me yet. Yeah, right. what the? Yeah. So I think, yeah. you know, I, I, I'm I'm just a stickler, so I get bitten by lots of things, except for venomous. The venomous, I'm a bit more cautious on. So, um, but everything else, it can chew on me. It doesn't really worry. Yeah, I'm by right. nubble saltwater crocodile, by nubble freshwater crocodile. Um, that was that was funny. Um, Stitches, or was it just a nice nice little wound? Uh oh, it wasn't too bad. It was only four feet long, so. It, oh, okay. It hurt. It hurt enough. Yeah. Hurt enough for me to not want to get bitten again. Put it that way. But um <laughs> but yeah, no, it wasn't wasn't too bad. So, um, what about the, like how was a scrubby bite? Um a oh scrubby, scrubby was pretty good. I got nailed by a scrubby on the shoulder. Uh, it was about a oh, 13 footer, I suppose. And Oof. I was I was about 18 years old, I reckon, and I was at a I was actually working in a pet shop and I ended up getting, I had this great idea that we'd get, get a big scrubby in for the pet shop and it lasted all of about six months before I got the shits with it and moved it on. Um, but I ended up, I was, it was a freezing cold day down in Melbourne at Cross and I was wearing a jacket and this thing just ended up just going, it went sort of half of my neck and I sort of moved and as I moved it got me on the shoulder. And the bruise I had was huge where from where it sort of got me. And it, because it bit me through the jacket, it wasn't so bad. So it was like just yeah, all these dots lucky. that went down on either side. So, you know, that's all right. Character building. I was, I was playing with my olive python not too long ago and uh, he's kind of, you know, just cruising around in between my arms and things. And all of a sudden I just felt his, his head, he just like stroked up against my beard. You see something just like, twitched in his head and I had a young fella from work around here and, and he, he I saw his face and his face just went like, <laughs> like this and then the next, I could feel like both jaws just like this and I was like Whoop, quickly grabbed it and pulled it off but yeah you almost got me right on the face that would have been he's not too they big give you the, they give you the good sneaky bites don't they they're yeah. not like a like like the carpet will rear up at you and then strike but they just like they'll just be cruising on your arm and just all of a sudden they're, they're eating your arm yeah, like Aspidites. Oh, Aspidites do yeah. that too. Yeah. I was doing a demo years ago and I we had this albino carpet and prick of a thing, but, you know, sometimes the demos are actually a really good time to actually calm animals down because you're there doing stuff anyway, so you might as well have the snake around your neck and you're handling it and all the rest of it. Anyway, so we had the, the federal opposition, no, state opposition member came through to the expo that we were at while we had this thing. And so we're talking about snakes and he's doing his whole whole thing. And he goes, oh, what's that snake that's on you? And I said, oh, it's just a harmless carpet pipe. And I said, it's it's being habituated at the moment. We can't, we're not letting the, the public hold that. He goes, oh, that's pretty good then. And next thing you know, within two seconds, this thing opened its mouth up and bit me straight on the top of the head. Oh. And so... <laughs> I missed being on camera by about five minutes. They'd just been through beforehand. Otherwise, I would have been that Muppet on Facebook that had getting nailed by a snake on on the middle live of the TV. telly and all the rest of it on live TV. And, like, I had blood coming down my forehead, down my back and all the rest of it because of a bloody thing. So we learnt yeah. back then to make sure that we have dark-coloured worktops because the blood just goes into the worktop and you can't see it. And you can't really see That's actually a good idea. 
So anyone doing demos out there, that's your tip for the day. To make sure you have dark covered clothing, it hides it better. <laughs> <laughs> that's close, isn't it? Yeah. So. So we're going to get into some Blizzard talk tonight, seeing as you've got a Blizzard yeah. book out there. Exactly. Or about to be yeah. out there, rather. I can't wait for that one. Yeah. yeah. So now well, there's an I can wait till gone. Yeah. You've, uh, you got your final proofing there tonight, didn't you? Yeah, you so we got there. the final proofing. Well, we got that about a week and a half ago, so that's all, yep. all said and done. Um, that's off to the printers now, so when when we get our proof back, who knows, but that's... Uh, that's up to the publisher, I suppose. They usually try and align it with a, a few other books at the same time to bring their printing costs down. Um, so I'd say mid-year at some point in time and, you know. Awesome. Wife and I, we've done another book together and we're still married and yeah. stuck it along. It's good. That so, would be a good test, I can, I'd imagine. Oh, man. Yeah, you can have some interesting arguments, that's for sure. <laughs> You can if you don't share similar interests in things as well. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, but it, it, yeah, I mean she's she's been keeping reptiles herself for over twenty years too, so it's not like she's been doing it for five minutes. So yeah, exactly. And we're both yeah, pretty strong-willed people. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> so, um, but look, you know, she's probably better at keeping a lot of species than I am. She's a lot more. She spends more time with the animals and because she's spending more time yeah. with them, she sees more stuff than I do. So um and some women just seem to have a way with reptiles, reptiles, I reckon. Some women just seem to have a way with animals. Like my wife. I think the same. women I reckon women are better keepers in general. Oh, yeah. Across my, the board. We had a parrot and my wife it loved her. I couldn't get near the thing. But just yeah, the it's unreal. This is but there's isn't there a there's a couple of good pages for um on Facebook for some of the women keepers as well. Is it Ty, Ty runs a page, doesn't she? On Facebook? Yeah, Ty's yeah, Ty's got a page called Herpers, which is capital H E R E R and then P E R S uh, in lowercase after that. And then there's a, a couple of others. There's one out of the States as well. And you know, I, I think it's a good idea. It's you know, the definitely, reality of definitely. it is there's a lot of the the reptile pages can be a bit of a dick swinging contest. Um, oh, yeah. And, you know, it, I, I suppose it's it's nice that, you know, that they've got a space that they feel that they can, they don't have to deal with the male bullshit, I suppose. Um, yeah. We all get sucked into it too, don't we? You know, the amount of shit that you see on stalk book and things like that. But um, I try to keep my head out of it. I just like reading comments. I'm like that so kind of lurk, lurking character there going, look at these fuckwits all bloody <laughs> going off at each other or whatever. But, yeah, don't have to agree with everything on that. Oh, I think that's the that's the beauty of it, though, too. You know, no one should always agree with everybody else either. You know, it's, it's, it's I think it's important that, you know, we challenge ideas and you know, we, we look at things analytically and and. You know, don't be afraid to, to admit when you're wrong because, you know, there's, there's right. plenty of things that I used to do that I won't do now. And yeah. it's not yeah. because I didn't think I was doing the right thing at the time. It's just that, you know, experience teaches you that there's better ways to do things. And sometimes you can get rose-coloured glasses from forcing your way to only do things a certain way because that's the way it's worked for you. 
And yes, it might have worked for you and it might have been a, a reasonable outcome, but it doesn't mean to say that's the best way to do it. Um, yeah, that's right. And, you know, not not one size fits all, um, you know, whether it's keeping in tubs or keeping in large enclosures or keeping outside, keeping inside, bioactive versus semi-bioactive, loose substrate, hard substrate, you know, there's, there's a myriad of different things out there and I think that, as long as whatever we do as keepers, we're trying to do the best for the animals within the means and the reason that we have, then that's all can be expected to do and always strive to do something better. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. There's no, there's no, well, there are right and wrong ways essentially, but at the same time, there's a million different ways to do things. So like you said, as long as you've got the animal in mind, it doesn't matter which way you keep. As long as you, your best interest to the animal so yeah as long as the animal is yeah. coming out on top i mean like i think jason and i were talking about this not too long ago about you know i used to have uh just snake racks everywhere you know and yeah. some of those were probably a little bit too small now that i'm looking back on it some of the tubs and stuff like that and now it's kind of like you know what i need to change up my keeping style i need to have less animals so i need to try to be able to give them just a bit more space and they don't have to be the most elaborate enclosures they don't have to be bioactive and all the rest of it but you know even just being able to offer a carpet python a bigger enclosure with a bit of perching you know something that it can kind of just get out and stretch on a bit you know rather than being in a, a plastic drawer essentially you know that was just one way that i could try to make an animal's life a little bit better and as long as the animal's a little bit better at the end of the day then that's my main concern mm. But there's also those animals that you'll take it out of that plastic tub, put it in a bigger enclosure, and it will just go downhill because it yep. doesn't like the big open space. It doesn't like staring at your ugly mug every day. It prefers that opaque container because it yep. feels safe. So there's certain animals that, you know, they'll thrive in those. There's certain animals that thrive, you know, in plastic containers and racks as well. So Yeah, it comes down to their individual personality. Exactly. I think it comes down to the keeper as much as, as their individual personality as well in that, mm. you know, if you've got a keeper that's, that is astute with what they're looking at and they're, they're, they're looking for those warning signs and all the rest of it, um, then they might be able to make sure that that enclosure is, is suited to their needs. So, you know, it may not necessarily mean that they need to go back into a, into a plastic drawer type set up, mm. but it might mean that the enclosure that you have put out there needs to have newspaper on the front of it or it needs to have yeah. something so the animal still feels and secure. More hides or something like that. More hides, tighter hides, smaller hides, yeah. hides in a warm spot, hides in a cold spot, etc. Exactly. etc. And I suppose one thing that we've learnt, I suppose, over these years and the one thing that we think consistently does seem to be important is allowing the animals to make the choice as opposed to making the choice for the animal. Yeah, that's right. And so... The only way that you can do that is to sometimes increase the enclosure size and, and have things that the animal may not necessarily use all the time, but at certain times that animal will use that. So, um, you know, we we had the opportunity to, to redo our, our setup a few years ago now and, you know, we set, aside, set ourselves apart to say, right, okay, what can we do? And the, the way we approached it is we went around and we spoke to a number of other herb keepers that we've known for a long time and said, if you could do a brand new herb, herb building, what are the five things that you want in your herb building? What are the first five things that you would do? 
And so for for me, the, one of the things that I thought was really important was moons, moon phases and, and stuff like yeah. that because moon phases in the wild is a, is a really important thing for nocturnal reptiles. So, But it's one thing that I couldn't for the life of me figure out a way to effectively replicate that in captivity. And so yeah. the only way that I figured I could do it is by putting uh, windows in the roof. But I didn't want to lose too much heat or create too much heat from those windows, so we ended up double glazing them. And so what that enabled us to do was then we have a photo period inside the room that is a completely natural photo period because the sun comes up, the room lights up, and then the sun goes down and the sun goes, and, you know, and then we made sure that with our lighting and stuff like that that it doesn't impinge on... Um, the day-night cycle. So we have our lighting to be a little bit shorter than what it is naturally. So that at night it is genuinely dark in the in the in the snake building. Um yeah. what we ended up finding within two months was that on the nights where there was a full moon, we weren't seeing a lot of activity in our nocturnal snakes in the enclosures. But when it was a new moon, which is where there's no moon outside that you can mm. see, um that's when everything was doing laps on the enclosures and stuff like that. So they were out on those dark nights, which is what you do tend to see in the wild. You tend to see more animals active on the darker nights than yeah, compared to when on the moon. on the nights of full moon. Yeah. So um, the other thing that we noticed with that as well is that we had the added bonus of the sun would then come in for parts of the day, and it wasn't enough to heat up the enclosures or anything like that, but it did give. Um, natural light of the right color temperature coming through into the enclosures yeah and any of the the uh heliothermic species so a heliothermic species is a, is one that actively basks under light as opposed to a thygothermic species which uses uh conduction as its means means of getting heat so a lot of geckos oogera and stuff like that are thygotherms in that yep. they're using heat via conduction from rocks and things like that as opposed to active basking, whereas heliothermic species are species that actively bask. And so I'll digress there slightly. Um, what I was finding is those heliothermic species, things like red belly black snakes and tiger snakes and stuff like that, would hunt out the patches of sun inside the enclosures and they would bask in the sun and flatten out and actually take themselves off the heat and go into a patch of sun, the thing, because their brains are hardwired to go for those the for sun. those spots. But we were starting to see behaviours that we didn't see uh, in normal captivity. So that was for us. That was something that was really important. Yeah, um, that's, a, that's something you'd miss out on a lot too. Just having them in a dark room, essentially, you'd miss out on. All well, that you're never going to see that in a rack, are you? No, no, definitely not. So, yeah. Um, I, I, I see I, that. I spoke, from, sorry. I see that from time to time, actually, um, with my diamond pythons, because I do have a, a can't remember if it's an east east facing window. So in winter, when the sun's real low and it's coming over, it actually shines in through into my diamond python enclosure, and there will be like a tiny little patch that's maybe like a thirty centimeter square, and they all kind of like cramp up and stack on top of each other in that patch, and mm. you know they love love getting right underneath that natural sunlight in that spot. It only lasts for about an hour, but you guarantee they're there for that hour. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I used to find that they'd actually be sitting in the spot before the sun would get there. 
Yeah. You know, it, they're not, people, yeah. people, people, they, they, they're a lot more switched on than people realise in some ways, I think. Um, yep. And I suppose that was, that's an interesting point in that, you know, these animals, what are they picking up on? They're not picking up on UV because the glass is going to filter out all the UV. So they're not visually right. seeing that UV. So the only thing that, in my mind, makes sense is that they're picking up on that color temperature and they're making a conscious decision to go into that full spectrum position. So the argument that snakes don't need UVB or they don't need full spectrum lighting, they may not necessarily need it, but obviously the snakes are seeking it out for a reason. That's right, because they can see the colors in the spectrum too. They're choosing. Well, they can see. They can see colors in a spectrum. We don't know yeah. what that spectrum is, though. Yeah. Um, you know, what what we can see versus what they can see. Those two spectrums are probably slightly different. Yeah. Um, and in in dragons and stuff like that, that's really important because there's there's dragons that have got coloration that's only visible in UV light. So that would suggest yeah. that they probably can see in in wavelengths outside of what the human eye can see. Yeah. And it's the same as iridescent sheen on some of the snakes as well. You can generally only see that in UV light. Yeah. So I, I suppose that's a, that's the one thing for us is that, you know, we're noticing that, I mean, these UVB LEDs that are, that um, ZooMed have got that are, that are coming, can't wait till they come because I think that'll be a bit of a game changer for a lot of people. Um, yeah, definitely. So I'm trying to figure out a way that I can set up some form of a a rack type system that I can incorporate UVB lights into because I think it's a I think it's a pretty important factor for for not only lizards but I think it's pretty important for snakes as well. The same goes with the coloration. No, you're right. Yeah, I was just going to say it's funny that you actually mentioned those LED UVB fixtures. I actually had the rep from Pet Pacific in today saying that hopefully they'll be here by Christmas in in Australia. So, yeah, that's pretty exciting stuff. Well, I didn't, I didn't know though. Are they just an E twenty seven twist in fitting? I don't know if they've got like a long kind of fixture or anything no, sort of. It is. One. It is just an. It is just an Edison screw fixture. It's got yep. six UVB diodes, five or six, four or five UVA diodes, and then the rest are six thousand five hundred Kelvin. Um, yep. Uh, I think it's about 15 or so other diodes. It gives, I think it's a total of nine watts or something like that, so it's pretty low. But they're talking 20,000 hours UVB output. Wow. Yeah. So that's four that's or five expensive. years. So I reckon these globes are probably going to cost, um, I don't know, uh, it wouldn't surprise me if they were a couple of hundred bucks each. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. But that's look at LED downlights when they first came out. They were hundred dollars each. Now you can get them for fifteen bucks. So I mean, over time, and once the technology improves, the price will probably come down a little bit. So, but I mean, the time frame that you're getting out of the UV compared to the um, like your incandescent, your normal UVB globes, I mean, I'd be mad not to if you're one of those people that wanted to do the UVB and invest the time in it. And see, like the LED is definitely the way of the future with lighting in general. So it'd be interesting well, to see well, how I, good they are. I went and got myself a, a UVB meter and I've been crazily running around with the UVB meter doing 
UVB everything that I can get the bloody hands on. Um, and it's really interesting to to actually use that as a tool to actually set up your basking spots in the right right locations and things like that. Um, yeah. And how quickly it does actually die off. You know, you sit there and go, oh, well, it's only that far apart, you know, six inches apart. But the, difference. the light output is huge. So what does that mean? From a husbandry point of view, you might end up deciding to change your enclosure up a little bit when your tubes are getting towards the end of their life, elevate your basking positions and stuff like that so the animals can still get access to UVB and get another six months out of that tube. Yeah. So, you know, I think I think going forward in 10 years' time or something like that, everyone will have UVB meters as, as herpers, as keepers, because they're going to go, well, spending a couple of hundred bucks on a meter is going to give me an extra six months out of a dozen lights or two dozen lights or something like that that I'm running and pay for your meter very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. I know after we spoke uh, of a week or so ago, Scott, when we were talking about UVB, that was one of the things that started triggering me in my head. I was like, you know what? I, I need to go and spend a bit of coin on this because that's going to be a tool that's going to be so handy in the arsenal. Um, I've actually got one at work, one of the, I think it's a ZooMed brand one that I actually have been yeah. meaning to to bring home just to have a play with, but it's just one of those things that keeps kind of slipping my mind and I keep buying these tubes instead, but I should be bringing that home. Even I could, I could do it on a weekly basis, you know, and still have access to it. It doesn't. It really doesn't take long too. Like it was, um, no. I was over to a mate's house the other week and he goes, oh, we'll get it out. Let's give it a run. And he had some Arcadia tubes sitting over the top of his his glouts and, and a couple of other bits and pieces. And I said, all right, let's, let's give it a go. Put it underneath. He goes, that's awesome. That's just saved me, you know, a hundred bucks. I don't need to go and buy another tube this weekend. I can, uh, obviously I can let that go for a little bit. And I said, oh, well, that one's down to this. That one's down to this. Oh, yeah, no worries. That's fine. So he's going to change out three tubes over the next three months, but he knows which ones are the ones to change first without sort of having the detriment to the animals rather than sort of doing it blindly. And there was, and from a visual point of view, looking at it, could not tell the difference. They look identical. Yeah. Yeah. So and that's the thing. Like you get, they've got the, I remember the Exoterra um, UVBs used to have the um, little, um, like calendar on it so you could mark when the globe need change and sit it near the globe. So you'd just be going blind. You'd be like, oh, yeah, that's been in there for six months. They recommend changing them. And you'd just go replace all the globes that were pretty much on written on the on the globe of the ex- expiration date for how long you've used it for. So you might only need to replace one or two instead of all however many 10 globes or whatever you've got running. And, and likewise, so it might mean too you can get away with using – some of the, shall we say, no-name brands of, of UB, UVB lights and stuff like that out there. So you can make that cost saving while still knowing what sort of UV output is going into your animals. So you're not going to either overdose them or underdose them either. So, um, yep. yeah. So, or you can just keep them outside. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's <laughs> The best, the best way to do it, really. But I mean, not always the best way. But I mean, oh, you've got I've a fair few pits outside, don't you, Scott? Yeah, we've got a we've got a lot of stuff outside, and it's it's interesting. It's a bit. I think it's a bit of a misnomer that it's easy to keep animals outside. Um, it's easy once you've got it set up right. 
but there's a shitload that can go wrong in a really fast period if you're not yep. not sort of watching what's going on and set your enclosures up right. Um, so yeah, so one of one of the things for us was when we moved into keep it outside, we put our parentes outside and set these enclosures up for the parentes, thinking that we'd done everything that we needed to do. We set up dams on the sides that came up about uh, 400 mil. Mm. And, you know, solid plastic, HDPE plastic up 400 mil, I thought was enough to ensure to keep cane toes out from getting inside the enclosures. Um, That was completely wrong. And, you know, we... You know, we, we had the parentheses outside, so we've, we're looking out there keeping an eye on and we had this bonded pair. And we'd only ever see one parentheses out for about a week and thought, oh, hang on, something might be a bit of a raw here. Then I started, to, I got a quick smell and I got, oh, shit, something's gone real bad. Next thing you know, there's a, a parentheses dead with a toad uh, in its gut. Um, so we cut it open, confirmed that it was a toad. And, you know, that's that's the, the sad part about keeping outside is that, you know, generally speaking, when you're keeping inside, you don't need to worry about predators or the things around around sure. your enclosures. You know that's all going to be fine. But, you know, keeping animals outside, you start to learn that there's other things you need to be cognizant of. Um, mm. The position of your pits, you need to make sure that they get enough sun and then in the winter particularly. But then they also make sure that they um, that you can cool them down in in summer. You know, it's obviously gets pretty warm here in southeast Queensland in in summer, and still gets quite cool in winter as well. So we need to make sure that we take that into account. And you can have a, a reptile can usually get cool as long as it's not cool and wet. If it's cool and dry, it usually handles it okay. But when they're cold yeah. and wet, that's when you get things like respiratory issues. Yeah, so, you know, sometimes managing that wasn't the easiest thing to do, particularly with species. So, you know, now when we're moving animals outside, we tend to try and move them outside in September, October, so that they go through a slow build-up to the heat because these are animals that have never usually experienced in captivity, experienced temperatures over about 31, 32, 33 degrees as an ambient. you know, the room, our room doesn't get any higher than about 29 degrees and then the air conditioner kicks it back down to 26. So mm. um, we wouldn't be expecting that that room to be in those high 30s. The only time it'll ever get to those high 30s is underneath that basking area. So the animals aren't used to having that that heat, so they need to be able to figure out how to process it. And so we've got to make sure that there's choice and refuges in those enclosures that you know, they, they can get into areas that are cool enough, but they also need to be able to get away from each other as well. So you've got to have multiple incli- multiple places that are cool and all the rest of it. So there's a lot of thought that goes into outdoor enclosure design. Um, but and you'd have to worry about flooding too, wouldn't you, if you had heavy downpours and, and all that stuff. So, so we like, actually run route. Down, it can come down real quick. Yeah, we run... Um, uh, roofs over the top of all of our external enclosures. Um, yeah. So the rain that they get is sort of sideways rain, and same thing with the UV um, is sideways as well. We run shade cloth over the top of all of our pits in summer, um, mm-hmm. and the whole idea of that is that they still get heat, they still get UV, but it's only it's 
just dappled light as opposed to sit there and direct and bake in the sun. But yeah. <laughs> um, but then at the same time too, you know, the the first weekend of April, um, we pull all the shade sails off and you know they all get rolled up and you know the animals are, are back to, to full sun over over winter. That same yeah. weekend, we pull out all of the substrate in the underground hides. So we've got underground hides with with lids on them, and so we can get to them. There's a foam box that's set down into the dirt. Inside that foam box, we fill that up with dry loosen. And so what we do is that's their refuge for, for hot and cold. We'll pull all that substrate out at the start of winter, make sure that there's no leaks or anything like that. They're not wet. Pull all that stuff out, chuck away all that um, and compost away all that, that litter and then put brand new fresh litter in there, make sure that everything's okay. So you're giving everything that, that opportunity to, to go. But, you know, we had an overnight, an over a day high today of about 23 degrees and the printies are just sitting out in the sun all day, just trying to get warm, you know? Yeah. Um, but we're not feeding them at this time of year, but we're still, we're still, we're still feeding. Uh, we've got some young bells outside. So, the young bells phase laces are being fed at the moment. Um, blue tongues are still getting fed. The Cunninghams, some of the Cunninghams that we keep are still getting fed. So we've got Sydney Cunninghams, we've got, um, or Sydney form, I should say. Um, don't know where exactly they are in Sydney, but, you know, the Sydney standstone form. Um, yeah. And so we've got those and we've got New England's and, you know, they're all still out. Um, but we've got Kimberley. Kimberley Blueys, Kimberley Northern's outside as well, and they do fine outside too. So, um, yeah. you, you got know. some blotches as well, don't you? Yeah, we've got alpine blotches and the and the lowland blotches too, and then we've got um, a couple of different colour forms of the the eastern shinglebacks, the the Rigosa aspira. Um, are you keeping Are you keeping the shingles outside? Yep, shingles are outside too. How do you and go they, with the moisture and them? Awesome. Fine. Yep. So just like every other enclosure, you gotta keep sections of it nice and dry. And they can yep. they can and we don't, you know, touch wood. Um, we don't have any issues with RIs or anything like that with them. Um every now and then we'll get an RI in, in a couple of our blotches. Um yep. particularly when it's warming up um on the other side. Um, you think an alpine blotchy uh, is is going to be the last one that's going to have an issue, but yeah, we've got one male alpine blotchy, or what we think is a male, and one female that invariably seem to get an RI as they come out of um, as they come out of winter. So, um, oh, that's when I noticed that my my animals sort of suffered it was when they were coming out of that brumation period. That was the one kind of time where it was you know, a little bit touch and go with a few animals, especially the ones that were kept outdoors. Um, I unfortunately had a bit of a bad experience keeping my blotches out this year. Um, yeah, a big heat wave came through and I wasn't home at the time. And I think I think here in Sydney got up to like 42 or 43 that day. It was just like a, a westerly that was just absolutely cooking. Yeah, I come, came home to 80% of my lizards, unfortunately, gone. So it was a bit of a heartbreaking experience when you're talking about keeping animals outdoors yeah yeah but it's easy remember it's easy yeah, yeah it's really easy. Really easy. you don't yeah. do anything yeah 
But the same thing but can what? happen. Like my room's only it's half a garage, so I've insulated the walls, the ceiling, and everything. But on those hot days, I had a little window rattler air conditioner that I'd have to turn on. So like obviously with leaf tails and that, they can't really tolerate heat for too long at all. So I I'd be at home if or my missus would be at home if I was at work and it was like getting up around 30 and I'd log on and I'd check the temperature of the room and I'd like, oh, because I don't, didn't have one of these um, power boards that you guys were talking about, I wish I did, but I'd have to ring her and go, hey, can you go down and turn the air? Yeah. I'd go, hey, can you run down and turn the air conditioner on? So she'd run down, turn it on, and I'd just blow cold air for until I get home in the hour just to make sure the temperature was all right. But, yeah, 40-degree day outside, this room would get, if I didn't turn that air conditioner on, this room would get probably hotter than 40 degrees because it's got a tent yeah. roof on it, so... Yeah. I was in the same boat. I used to always have to call my, my sister-in-law or my father-in-law or something and go, quick, roll up both the roller doors, you know, like I need to get some breeze going through this thing. So that's that's pretty much 100% the reason that I did this whole Grid Connect power board thing was to try to alleviate that, especially when I'm in my own joint. Then, you know, I don't have to rely on anybody else. I can just quickly flick a switch and, and know that I'm hopefully golden. Well, yeah, those days, of- I mean... Those days where it gets so hot. But... Sorry, you guys got. You do your dicking around now with the Grid Connect, figure out how to do it all. And, you know, I mean, that once you've got it set up and if you've got it set up and you put it on a um, a UPS, a little UPS with an air conditioner that can run a, U- a UPS that can run an air conditioner, you're, you're going to be golden. You, you'll never have to worry yeah. about a hot day in your life again. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the, probably so, the most dread hot days. I just remember looking at the weather forecast and seeing like 35 for four days straight and I'd just be dreading those days. Yeah. But that's the day Not that you have. Are. But that's when you, you know, you get ingenious and things like that. We've got a chest freezer and, you know, we used to use juice bottles, fill them up with, with water, leave 100 mil out of the top of them, put them in the freezer and then set it up a... Um, an esky, leave the esky open, throw two or three of those in there with some ice in it and then have the fan blowing on that so you ended up just getting cool air just being pushed around the room and it used to work quite well. So um, I used to do something similar. I used to get um, like the Glad Ziploc bags, fill them up, put them in the freezer and then I'd go and place like the little sandwich bag and I'd go and place one of them in every enclosure kind of behind where all the leaf tails are perch on the on the wall or on the bark so that way if, it, if for some reason that the power went out because sometimes on those hot days everyone's turned their air conditioner on so the power goes out they had that cool ice block that they could still at least go down to 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 cool down so yeah, yeah. you get so, inventive. I, I, and, I, and i suppose you know that's the interesting thing and it's you know one of the things we we're sort of half planning on talking about tonight was that you know that dealing with the wall versus captivity and that's that's one thing that is important to, to think about because when you look at a, a pit or an indoor enclosure or anything like that you look at it and you you're going to try and make make sure you're emulating what's out in it what you think they require in captivity um or what they need in the wild you're going to try and emulate that in captivity i should say the problem with that is is sometimes it's very hard to actually provide what those animals are getting in the wild versus what you can provide them in captivity. Exactly. Now, what I mean by that is that in those rainforests, yes, you know, you can get a westerly come through in a rainforest and it can blow 
hot air into that rainforest and you can have a, a point where the, the temperature significantly elevates. But those leaf tails are going to find cracks in those trees that might be two feet thick that's that right. they are able to jam themselves into that won't get to that temperature of, of 32, 33, 35 degrees. It's completely impossible to do that from a practical sense in, in an internal enclosure. So sometimes to, to set up an enclosure or a pit, we need to be cognizant that while we want it to look like what we think they should need in the wild, we may need to change that to actually suit how we can we can give the the animals the parameters that they what we think they need in captivity, um, and so that might mean that bioactive isn't the isn't the best way to go, particularly with large species. Um, exactly. In a in an enclosure that's got a fairly small floor area, it might be a large enclosure to us, but a bioactive enclosure for a, a large monitor is going to need to be considerably larger than most of the large enclosures that are inside. It'd be you're almost a, f- a full bedroom, even bigger, realistically. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as we were talking about earlier, you were just talking about the breaking down of urates and, you know, how many bugs and bits of cleanup crew and stuff you'd need to be able to break down all of the waste from an animal that's so big that's producing so much feces that's got a high metabolism. Like, it's, it's okay when you're talking some species like your, your geckos and maybe something like your boids and things like yeah. that. But when you're talking about those kind of animals, like keeping up with that demand is just going to be near impossible in a what we'd consider a regular enclosure. Yeah, yeah, and definitely. I mean, even then too, you've got to watch your numbers too. So an enclosure that can handle X amount of lizards at one size are okay until you have they have them breed and then suddenly you're raising up another six or seven babies from that litter inside that now, that enclosure now as well. So you've just significantly added to the load that your cleanup crew, so to speak, has to has to deal with. Um, and that's right. Yeah. And you don't know if those animals are predating on your cleanup crew as well. So if you've got um, yeah. like other types of isopods, those those lizards are hundred percent going to be picking off off those isopods so you essentially at the end you might just be relying on springtails so if you don't keep an eye on that as well that's another thing but that um urates and all the bad bacteria is essentially going to go through the roof real quick yeah i mean i even in my boys enclosure even though that's kind of small i've noticed that all my earthworms have gone missing <laughs> funny that big big long sharp teeth um yeah. you know yeah. you look at things like ceranoscincus reticulatus that's a the, the snake tooth skink, um, they've got these huge long teeth and those huge long teeth are designed for eating slugs. And, you know, they've got this specialist dentition for that. You look at those big sharp teeth that are on the mouth, mouth of um, boids and, and uh, uh, spinapes, you know, they do have those, those long teeth. So it wouldn't surprise me if they are taking slugs and snails and... Um, and worms when the opportunity presents themselves. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, I definitely know they're partial to worms because when I was breeding a, a fair few worms here, I'd be tossing a few in for them as a bit of a treat and, yeah, that'd be straight onto it. They'd be straight out of the trees and straight on top of them for a bit of a worm snack. Yeah. Delicious. Awesome little lizards they are. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I kind of want to just touch on something quickly and kind of skew the conversation a little bit sideways. 
But have you done much herping for like a Dartria? Oh, okay. Um, oh, I've I know it's completely there. left left of field. That's completely it. Um, well, a Dartria is the as the greater subgenus for some strange reason. Um, I've found a few of them. Um, Acanthurus and uh, Acanthurus I've seen plenty of. Store I've seen plenty of in a few different locations. Um, so Gill and I once, um, despite looking for lots and lots of the Gillans, I've only ever seen them once. Um, but you know, there, there's there's lots of things out there that um, that I've gone chasing unsuccessfully, but I've also found a few things too. What what Adadatria in particular are you asking about? Oh, I just know that because you you know you're quite a keen herper, and I'm you know a hobbyist herper. I'll call it. Um, well, but yeah, I'm a no, hobbyist I, too, mate. Don't remember that. <laughs> I spent a little bit of time out in uh, out, out near Yulara and stuff in February, yeah. and I, I mean I must have looked in a thousand trees for Gil and I quite easily. Um, I have to really thank my wife for being so patient while she was waiting in the car, and I'm walking around in the bush looking in every tree crack. But yeah, that, unfortunately what, they did. What did time in the morning? What time in the morning were you looking? As soon as the sun was up, I was out for the first kind of few hours, just trying to see. You know, if they were coming out for a quick warm up before it got too hot in the day, I reckon I would have but, been out uh, before. I reckon I would have been out looking for them before sunrise, and I would have found a, before, a patch of yeah, found a patch of trees that, that I thought was going to be the goods, and then concentrate on that for the first hour or so after sunrise. So be out before sunrise yeah. to find your spots where you're wanting you're wanting to be looking, and then yep. after sunrise to be actually on that spot at the right time. Um, some people have got the eye for it though too. Um, there's yeah. a young fella, Nathan, that um, and Adam, who I was talking before. Both of those guys, you know, you'll be driving along the car, stop, lizard, and next thing you know, they've spotted a, a goanna or a dragon, twenty or thirty meters, fifty meters, while you've been doing hundred k's an hour on the road. So my eyes aren't yeah. bad, but they're not as good as that. So. Yeah, it's definitely a knack. Yeah, the more time you spend yeah. out there, the, the 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 more you sort of get your Same eye on shining too. Yeah, yeah. I, I like to yeah, think I, I'm, I'm half decent at that now. I still haven't got a knack for not eye shining yet. Well, at least not with reptiles, frogs and stuff. It's not so hard. But I'm really yeah. good with spiders. <laughs> <laughs> I think everyone's really good with spiders. Yep. Um, no, leaf, tail, leaf tails are a really good one to, to get your eye in on them, and Asian house geckos are good as well. Um, <laughs> if you if you live up a bit further north, but um, oh look, you you go to some spots and it doesn't take much as long as you get your, that head torch right down in between your eyes. It, the head torch needs to be right there, not yeah. not up yeah. here. It needs to be right there, um, and. You need to be prepared to get stung by singing trees and walk into shit and fall over and, and all the rest of it because you can't take your eye off off that animal once you've got that eye shine. So, yeah. Um, you know, I've, I've come a cropper a few times where, you know, <laughs> I, I, I've been concentrating on other things and, um, you know, next thing you know, I've been stung by a bloody stinging trees or falling down or, or anything like that. That's nah, nah, character building. What do you do? Those trees don't sound like they're much fun to be stung by, that's for sure. 
Ah, the the shit I did. They're those ones, yeah. They're up in Queensland, aren't they? Yeah, northern New South Wales, you get them as well. You get the the southern version that um, comes to the end all about Dorigo. Um, yeah. What's the name of those shape. trees for anyone listening? Gimpy Gimpy or yeah. Giant Stinging Tree. Um, suicide Tree, I've heard, the, is one of the more colourful names for the, the North Queensland version. Um, <laughs> mate, until you've been stung by one, it's it's uh, it's it's red hot, that's for sure. Um, yeah, well, I fortunately haven't been, so. But I, 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 I'll put it to try it. I, I carry some, um, some duct tape in my bag specifically when I'm going to be out where there's um, – yeah, the singing trees. Because at least you can put the, the duck, you can take the duct tape and you can stick it on the hairs and then you can tear it off and yeah. you tear the hairs out at the same time. And it lessens the sting. Um, I say lessens, it doesn't remove it. Um, and then, you know, for a good good amount of time after that, you'll, you know, you wash your hands and stuff like that and you'll, you'll set them all off again and you'll be, you'll be burning <laughs> all over again. So, um, where, where whereabouts are these trees found? Are they found in kind of like more forests or rainforests or yeah, rainforest. And particularly when with yeah. the rainforest, when you have a tree fall over, um, they they you know they're light hunters. So as soon as the there's a, an opening in the canopy there, they they all just sort of pop up out of the soil, and next thing you know, they're everywhere. But um, you know they they you know the giant singing trees are you know they get big buttresses on them, and they're a huge rainforest. Mm-hmm. Huge rainforest tree. Um, you know, you, once you see them, you, you'll never forget them after you've been stung by one. <laughs> yeah. I can only imagine. I can't, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't sound like much fun at all. No. The dead leaves will sting you too. Oh, really? Shit. I got done by them. I was looking for uh, Philoria, which is a, a type of fossorial frog. My Betrakan frog, no, an astid frog, um, and they they call from below the surface, and so I could, thought I heard one calling. So I was I was carefully moving back some leaf litter, and when I moved back some leaf litter, I picked up a piece of dead stinging tree without without realising it, and I quickly realised that it was a stinging tree as I picked it up, and as I sort of picked it up, I threw it. And then got myself on the underside of the palm. So all four fingers and the thumb and the palm on one hand was completely on fire for about six hours. Yeah, you can see why they'd refer to it as a suicide tree. Jeez, you'd want to be tearing your hand off or cutting your hand off. That was a dead one. Oh, look, if I had sandpaper, I reckon, in the car, I reckon I would have taken to my hand with sandpaper. To try and oh, take yeah, the first bit of skin of off. It. Well, you know how you can take that first bit of skin off without actually cutting yourself. Uh, yeah, I was like, yeah, oh, maybe yeah. I could, maybe I could just use the sandpaper to to try and get rid of the. No, didn't work. Man, that sounds absolutely horrible. Well, people sort of, apparently sort of have speech? fallen fallen into it, you know, and that's why they called the suicide tree. Because you know they've they've come over a rock or something like that and fallen Tripped down. Over. And you're in North Queensland, so you're usually in a singlet and a pair of shorts. And yeah, because it's so humid yeah. up there. You might be in a pair of thongs as well. So you just... yeah. 
Yeah. You know, like your ice cracks hanging out too. So, you know, you just get stung <laughs> everywhere. It'd be a completely unpleasant thing to have happen to you. So, you know. I just thought that was a standard Queensland uniform. Sing it, thongs and shorts. Oh, yeah. Sing the thongs and shorts. Well, I don't wear thongs. I don't like wearing thongs. I wear shoes, but um, that's just because I don't like wearing thongs. But a lot of people like wearing thongs. So, I pretty much live in thongs. So, yeah, I'm the same. That's crazy. What's what sort of species are you kind of looking around for those, you know, where you are in those rainforests where those trees are found? What sort of species were you trying to target when you were there? Um, so North Queensland, it was usually, you know, a species of leaf tail or a species of frog that I hadn't seen. Um yeah. or skink that I hadn't seen. Um when down south again, much the same, you know, either geckos or skinks or, or frogs, stuff that I hadn't seen before. So you know, I like taking photos of things and I like seeing things that I haven't seen before. So, you know, that's what I try and stick the stick the camera in front of whenever I can. Um, and, you know, I find it much more enjoyable to be out there in the bush looking for animals than as I get older. I enjoy it more looking for stuff and trying to get photos of things in situ. You know, that's yeah. my... I really, I really like trying to get photos of animals without you know, having disturbed them in any way, shape or form because, you know, that's a true representation of how that animal was. Um, yeah. So yeah. If, if it's got some dirt on it, then so be it. If there's a piece of grass in front of it, well, you know, it is what it is. So um, so that's what I, I aim for these days. Um, and, you know, I, I suppose the photos are a way to, to say, oh, this is what I've seen. You know, yeah. What's one species that you um that has eluded you every time you look for it? The main one, because everyone's got that species. Oh, my unicorn. <laughs> you want yeah. to know my unicorn? My unicorn is actually something that a lot of people have seen. Um, my unicorn is a thorny, a live thorny devil. I'm up to seventeen. I'm up to seventeen dead ones. Wow. Oof. Yeah, I, I I think I got six dead ones in the two weeks or whatever I was when I was there. Didn't get to see a live one whatsoever. And like I got them squirming and everything. That was the worst part. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And you've been out there a few um, times too, haven't you? Yeah, I've been out in their range quite a few times. Yeah. <laughs> so it hurts. It hurts. Yeah. It hurts so bad. But, oh, look, it is what it is. Um, oh, that's it. Gives you something to look for next time you go out there. And you've yeah. got bloody oh, oh. the Yanks coming over and finding Owen Pelly's just straight off the bat. Like, Let's not talk about them. I know. <laughs> I think I they'd reckon, get enough praise for that find. I reckon that they were out there looking for Yowies. I reckon Owen had them yeah. out there looking for Yowies. And Definitely. It was, Owen Pelly was just bycatch. Yeah. So, yeah. Except well, Keith, so Keith, was look, Keith was looking for Owen Pellies and so was Rob Stone, but I reckon well, that's probably why I, following. That's probably why I found it because he's so good looking for Bigfoot. He's been he's so yeah, good yeah. looking for Bigfoot. That's why he found the Owen Pelly. It's the Bigfoot. He found it. He's had, he's had at least 10 years of practice as far as I've heard. Yeah. Didn't Keith, wasn't Keith the one who found it though? The, the old fella. Yeah, I think it was, yeah. He was yeah, a, I think the old fella the Let the young bucks go through. That's right. Back and just watch, just watch 
Next thing you know, my there it is. <laughs> my understanding is uh, Rob and Eric are both pretty short, so they probably weren't, you know, able to see above the short shrubs that were around there. <laughs> Mate, Eric's Eric's not a tall fella. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a tall fella and he's not tall. So you know. um, I met the fellas. I met uh, Eric, Rob, Chris Salemi. Uh, and, you know, I got to show them a coastal carpet python, which they were really excited about. So um, it was just another crapper to me, but they were pretty excited. So, yeah. Um, but, yeah, that was a few years ago now. So, yeah, nice guys. It's, and- it's, it's crazy how, you know, something that we just take for such a norm, you know, is so exciting for somebody else. And it goes both ways, you know. I'm sure right. you'd be so excited to go and see all the rattlesnakes and stuff like that over that way. But Bloody COVID. Um, you know, I was meant to be over in the States last year talking at a, at a Herp conference over there and, you know, one of the main things for, for us over there was to be out chasing rattlesnakes as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, saw point, every time I see a nice photo of a black-tailed rattlesnake, I sit there and go, could have been me. <laughs> so bad. <laughs> oh, That's all right. What do you do? Yeah, yeah there's always, yeah. Next always next time. Mm-hmm. So We've planned oh, the trip a bit more yeah. now, though, so we're, we're on to the money when... We do eventually get over to the States and go herp and we're going to go tear it up. Well, while you are talking about herping, while we're talking about herping, what are some kind of like essential key points that you reckon that anybody trying to get into herping should kind of have as fundamentals? You know, I'm talking about gear to have on on them as they go out for a trip, whether it be a long trip or even just a night out locally. What do you reckon any any herper should be carrying up them on them at all times? I reckon the most important thing that a herper should have with them with them is another person. Yeah. I yep. think at the end of the day, it, it doesn't matter. Now, all the other stuff can can go by the wayside, but it, it's so much more fun herping with somebody with you. So yeah, if something goes to shit, you know, if something goes to shit, they can help bail, bail you out. You know, if you see something cool and your camera doesn't work or whatever, well, they saw it too. So that's right. You know, at least you got back up. At least, at least you got someone else to go along with the story. You know, but um, if you're walking through the bush at night time, it's so easy to get lost. Yeah, and I've been there. So and easy done to get it. lost. Yeah, I've been lost in the bush a couple of times where, you know, lost in the sense that I had no idea where I was, but I was able to. Because I did have some prior planning before I went in, I had a bit of an idea where I was and was able to use bushcraft and get myself back out. Um, the reality of it is, is what's the most important thing? Um, it really depends. My suggestion would be to stick to the stick to fairly well known places first before you start get getting excited and, and running off doing a fifteen kilometre walk through the through the scrub to try and find an obscure skink or gecko that only lives on the top of one hill and it's only active at one certain time of year. Um, you know, start off start off small and pick something that you like. And it doesn't really matter really matter what it is, but pick something and target something. And that's I think that's one of the most important things to do. So, mm. you know, you guys were talking about, you know, Boyd's Forest Dragons and stuff like that. If you're picking boids as your as your as your target, that's fine. 
research before you go, get an idea of what they live in, where they live, what time of year they're active. Um, once you've you've got that nailed down, try and find a place that is relatively easy to get to um, that you can go and do a walk for and, and go and enjoy yourself. Bring yourself a, a camera that's got, you know, a decently long lens on it of some description so you can record it, so you can go back and look at your photos and go, oh, that was the time that I found that boys. Um, yep. And make sure you've got spare batteries for it, spare batteries for, you know, anything that requires power, make sure you've got spare spare batteries for, um, whether yep. it be a head torch or whatever. Probably give the night stuff a, a bit of a berth before you do, you're used to doing your stuff during the day and then, but yeah, get out there ideally with somebody else that's done it before and enjoy it together, have fun. Yeah, I even just some basic essentials as well to take along with you. It's like I always have a bandage in my bag just in case something goes awry. Um, yep. Plenty of water. Like, you know, yeah. it's amazing how distracted you can get when you're, especially when you are out with a mate or something like that, looking around for these things, whether it be day or night, you know, you get get talking and you get walking and then all of a sudden, you you know, you've gone through one bottle of water only to discover you're only halfway through your trip and it's probably not a bad idea to have another one on you just as a, bit of a precautionary thing um well yeah as you say, spare, spare sim cards and batteries are a must a spare yeah. sd cards rather yeah yeah definitely um you know water for me i end up losing 30 centimeters more bow because i didn't drink enough water you know that's, yeah, right. that's, that's the that's the long story yeah. short of it um you know that that field herping podcast if you you want to listen to when shit goes sideways that's a um that's not a bad listen. Um, mm. And I spoke about the time that, you know, I was up in um, North Queensland, didn't drink enough water, got dehydrated, ended up having an interception of the bowel mm. and uh, 30 centimetres my bowel later um, and surgery and I'll never be the same again. So uh, drink more water, kids. That's what it comes mm. down to. Um, it's it's crazy how things can start just going sideways so quickly. Like even when we were out at um, uh, Carter Judah in, in February, you know, my wife and I were kind of like, oh, you know, it's about 10 o'clock in the morning. We'll go and quickly do this walk up to the kind of like, you know, in the middle of Carter Judah where you're allowed to do this touristy track, so to speak. And you go, oh, it's going to be 38 degrees today. If we do it by 11, we'll be back by 12. Hopefully, you know, it won't be too hot on the way back or whatever. Man, we were so wrong. Like we got out there and I, I think we'd packed, I think we had three litres of water each on us. But what you don't take into consideration is you're walking on rock versus just kind of like the ambient air temperature and that rock's radiating all of that sunshine that's beating down on it. And those Straight rocks up. would have been, yeah, that was horrible. Like I remember getting back to the car and I was starting to get really heat stressed. I pretty much stripped down into my undies, hopped in the car. We got the air con absolutely blaring because I was just, you know, I was starting to get like delirious. That, that was kind of a moment where I was like, you know, I think I really bit off a little bit too much. I should have planned that a little bit better. No, nowhere near to the extent of obviously losing, losing 30 centimetres of your bowel, but I felt like my brain was getting cooked pretty quick. Once you get to that point where you start to, to get severely dehydrated and start to suffer the effects of heat stroke, um, you know, it's realistically it's a life-threatening, life-threatening thing. Um Particularly in the tropics, when I go herping up there in in the summer, I'll tend to try and find somewhere to go looking for during the morning 
and then in the midday to afternoon I'll probably go chasing snorkeling and stuff like that. Um, spend most of the day you know, fluffing about in a creek and, and enjoying yourself in the cool and, and just relaxing and all the rest of it and then sort of gearing up for another big night out, you know, chasing critters. And, um, you know, you tend to find that that's a – it means that you're not out in that, that midday sun because that midday sun – it's an absolute killer for, for you and, you know, from, from most parts, for most reptiles, most stuff isn't active in, in the absolute heat of the day. So you're just, you know, doing yourself a disservice being out anyway. Yeah, I mean, we, we weren't in particularly looking for reptiles at that point. We were kind of still trying to do a bit of touristy stuff while we were there. But, you know, nonetheless, I think it was a bit of a bad call on our behalf, that's for sure. So was that the Valley of the Wind walk or something, was it? No, it wasn't even that walk. It was only the short one where it was um, kind of just into, I forget what the peaks are called, but like into the main, in between the main kind of valley. And uh, I think it was like an hour there and back. Like it wasn't even that long, but yeah, it was enough. It was enough to kind of wake me up to it and go, you know what, you're not not playing here. So. Yeah, well, you know, a lot lot of people lost their lives at that particular national park, you know, trying to. You know, trying to climb that big gravity rock, so um, you know that's not going to happen yeah. anymore. But you know, at the same time, it's 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 hard to imagine just how hot it is out there, particularly where you got that heat radiating back off those rocks. Um, yeah, so, you know, but that's enough. To, it's enough to make the soles of your shoes gummy. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, look, look, the other stuff that that I personally take out with me now, I, I take a UV meter out with me now. I'm, I'm UVB, UVB meeting everything um, that I see. But um, Are you taking a temperature gun as well? Yeah, I take a temp gun too. So yeah. I've got a temp gun and a UVB meter that I'm taking out now, and I'll just record that for my own shits and giggles. Um, yeah, I use a, an app called Hurt Mapper. Um, which is a, an app that you can download on your phone. You set up a, an account because it doesn't cost you a cent. Um, and basically you can record everything you find with the with the Hurt Mapper app. Um, you can make it private or, or not private and that way you can actually get some data and, and GPS locations and stuff like that that you can access down the track. So uh, that's pretty handy. Um and then on top of that, then I'm just I'm taking my camera gear, water, um, bandage, and that's it. So. It's kind of good to pack light, really, when you're going on a long walk. Yep. Yeah, especially when you're fairly rotund like me. Yeah, that's a lot of weight. I wouldn't be carrying around that sort of weight. Yeah. I think my cam- yeah. my camera gear is nine kilos. Yeah. Well, I had. When I go, well, because I used to do a bit of landscape stuff, but setting up with all your filters, tripods, lenses, camera bag, it weigh yeah, easily over 10 kilos. But, yeah. So I use What's a low-pro of- bag. I've got a low-pro bag and a backpack bag, and, and that's yep. I can carry everything I need in that. I don't take a tripod with me, though. It's, nah, that's right. That's You don't definitely don't need that. What sort of um, flash setup are you using for your camera? I'm using three wireless 
SB800 flush guns. Yep. So are they connected to the, the body underneath, or are you just high, like hand holding the other the other three? So I've, I've got a, a man. I've got a Manfrotto dual flash bracket, um, yep. and then there's one sitting on the hot shoe on the top. Yeah. So one on the top, two on either side. I don't use diffusers. Um, some people like the diffusers. I've found that when you're using three flashes and with diffusers on it, it just looks makes the light go very yellow. Um, mm. it seems to oversaturate it, and I don't really like it that much. I don't like the light of it. Um, whereas a lot of other people have gone to these, you know, twin diffuser setups and stuff like that, and then you've got to hold a flash in one hand and then try and hold the camera in another. Yeah. All too hard for me. So. <laughs> Um, I feel like sometimes when I'm out with mates, I become the flash holder, you know, because I haven't got my camera there or whatever, or I just use my phone. So, you know, my other mates with a camera go there like, oh, can you just hold this quickly and point it in this direction or whatever for me? I'm like, yeah, cheers. This is exactly what I've come out here to do. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, so I, I, I'll set myself up. I've got a – I actually got a little LED torch that sits on the top of my um, – on the top of my top flash gun as yep. well. And so that is my focusing light as well because I only use yeah. manual focus um, Yeah, because I want to focus on the eye. I don't want to focus on wherever the, the autofocus wants to point it. Um, yeah. So I'll – and I only use manual as well. But, I mean, I started off taking photos with film. So, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, you sort of – you learn how to take photos in that sense and – yeah, it's because um, you haven't got as many uh, many opportunities. Well, every time you pressed up shutter, it used to cost you a dollar. That's the way exactly. I used to think of it. So, um, <laughs> but that's all right. You know, you move on. You use digital now. So it's like everything. You know, we 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 modify ourselves with the time. So, mm. um, I I really enjoy photography. I think it's a it's an art. Same. Um, yeah. You can use it as a way to record information, but then you can also use it as a way to recall memories and things like that as well. And, um, you know, you, I look at certain photos and go, oh, yeah, you know, I was out herping with this fellow at that time or I did this or I did that or this is when I saw this on this trip or, or whatever. Mm. So, um, yeah. yeah, it's good. Oh, that's half the fun is just making the memories. Yeah, exactly. Definitely. So what – Again, while we're talking herping, why don't we get into like a little bit of leaf tail gecko talk? Because I know Jason and I are both pretty keen on the old cryptic geckos, and yeah. uh, you've seen you most beat me of them. to it, Luke. You beat oh, me to it. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> well, I'm missing uh, one species of Sotuarius, which is Sotuarius eximius from Cape Melville. Um, yeah. I haven't seen Araya occulta, which is from the Micklewraith. Um, I haven't seen Phalurus pinicolensis and I haven't seen Phalurus galbaru. Uh, so pretty much the four stuck. most rarest ones. <laughs> yeah. Well, galbaru is probably uh, quite a few people are seeing galbaru. I just, I've, I've yeah. been out a couple of times looking for them. I just haven't been successful. So, um, yeah, pinicolensis is a, is a bit of a tough one from what I'm hearing. And, um, Araya is really hard to get into. Um, it's a, a national park that you need two two different sets of permission to get in. You need uh, permission from Parks and Wildlife to go in there, and you need 
uh, because it's managed by the Aboriginals as well. You need um, Aboriginal permission to get in as yep. well to that particular park. So um, it's a research park. At hopefully one day I'll I'll be able to get an opportunity to go in there. Um, and then Cape Melville, where the leaf tails are, there they're up on top of a a boulder field that in some rainforest that's extremely hard to get onto. So um, when they found them, they actually chop it in. They used a chopper to get to the top of the boulders and um, got in there and and then they found them. So, you know, those ones it are going to be pretty wonder. tough. Yeah, it makes you wonder how many different, like, species that haven't been found yet in some of those remote areas in Australia because there's so many areas that probably people have never even been into. Mm. Well, some of, I mean, some of these leaf tiles are specifically where, you know, uh, there's a bloke by the name of Conrad Hoskin that has discovered a number of these populations. Um, yep. You know, Conrad's looked at the uh, at the maps and he's looked at the uh, how these things have sort of evolved and sort of picked out. Well, there should have been rainforest at this particular time here. Mm. This rainforest is probably contracted to this range, and so then he spent a, a lot of time focusing his attention in certain ranges to try and find things and, and it's paid off to, to turn up things like Pinicolensis and, and Eximius, you know. So, um, you know, it's a, a real credit to him. So it's 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 a targeted searching, but I'm sure yeah. he spent many nights out of the rainforest in places where he was like, oh, I think this should be for leafies, but there was nothing Hasn't there. Hasn't found so. them yet, yeah. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, look, it's, they're an awesome animal to, to see in the scrub. Um, you know, obviously because they don't move very much, they That's right. have speciated into to lots of different things because they don't move and there's not a lot of um, gene flow between the populations because they don't move that far. Um, and you've effectively got like these islands of, of habitat that they can only live on. So like the Mount Elliot leaf tail, the only place that that thing's found is on Mount Elliot because it, there is no other rainforest nearby that suits suits that leaf tail gecko. So, um, you know, Phalerus isis is the same. It's on Mount Dukes and Mount Blackwood. Um, Osses found in one patch of rainforest. Nepthes is found in a patch of rainforest. Champion A is in a, in a patch of rainforest. Carby Carby, um, Cordanulatus, you know, as, as you go down, they're only found in these little patches. And so yeah. for the most part, finding them is effectively the same. You're, you're walking along places that, um, you know, looking for those that characteristic ruby red eye shine, and you know, looking for a, a little piece of moss or or rock face that doesn't quite belong, and you know, usually, you know, about a foot or so from the ground, head facing down, and you know, a funny little tail, and yeah, they're they're, they're amazing little critters to see. Um, so cryptic. I too. know. Yeah, really cryptic. Um, I know that they're starting to experiment using camera traps to, to try and get ideas on where some of these things are and, and map populations and things like that, particularly as some of the rarer species. So mm. um, so that's interesting. Um, your saltuarius are obviously a much larger, uh, much larger leaf tail. Um, you know, they're the... The cornutus that, that get to up to 40 centimetres long. You've got salabrosis that are similar in length but are a little bit heavier. 
Um, yeah, with a broader tail too. With a broader tail. You know, pretty Fantastic incredible tail. to see a leaf tail that it's almost the size of your forearm in length. Yeah. Um, and the tail and probably you know, like hang- as wide as your palm almost sometimes. Yeah, yeah well. Close to Oh, yeah, two, probably two, two-thirds the size of your palm. Yeah. yeah it's it's um, And then, you know, other places, you you know, you're going to see Wyberba. And I remember the first time I ever saw Wyberba, I didn't know how to head torch. So I was running along with a an old dolphin head torch, uh, an old dolphin yellow torch, you know. And you're sitting there trying, trying to find this thing. And I was out there with a mate and – it's pretty steep in some of those places and it's a bit slippery on the on the granite slopes and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget, you know, you, you get separated from each other. Next thing you know, I just see this light just bouncing down about <laughs> 100 or so <laughs> metres. I remember yelling out. I said, you right? He goes, yeah, yeah, but fucking torch is gone. <laughs> the torch had slipped out of his hand. Another reason for using head torches. The torch has slipped out of his hand and bounced all the way down to the bottom of his thing. And being a dolphin torch, the thing's almost indestructible. So yeah, all I had to do was go bottom. down to the bottom, find the torch, and then I had to clamber back up to where he was to give him his bloody <laughs> torch back. Right? So another reason to go out to you know chasing torches, uh, chasing critters with another person. So if you drop your torch, you can find it again. Hmm. Um, <laughs> So, so yeah, them and yeah, sorry, go. I was just going to say, just a, a side note, they're, they're the only gecko, they're the only leaf tail gecko I've actually bred now is the Wyberba. I got lucky this year and got a couple of hatches out. Actually yeah. managed to hatch a couple inside of an enclosure and then also incubated some on a bookshelf as well. But I think uh, Jason hooked me up with a male Wyberba and I got another group off another mate who they're got four girls from him and they're, ancient by the looks of them like they're mm-hmm. they're, they're really old um but yeah they're a species where i've kind of been a bit greedy and gone you know what i have to keep these things back because you don't see them kicking around the hobby at all so i thought i need to start up a bit of a captive population on my end with those guys there are the wyber are a really beautiful beautiful gecko there's three or four different populations of them too some of them are, are rock dwelling and then some of them are really strictly Tree dwelling animals as well. Yeah. Yeah. Right. um, So it's different locality, but they that they some localities are really strict being on the trees only. I've never seen them on the rocks. Um, Plenty of rocks where they are, but there's just no rocks. They don't see the use of rocks. Yeah. Yeah. Well. And I every place I've seen them, I've also seen Uvitacolis as well. The um, the granite thick tails. Oh, so you've seen um, them too. Yeah, they're they're beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. Geckos. Um, I'd um, I will, you know, I don't keep keep geckos anymore, but that'd be one thing that I'd actually I wouldn't mind trying to keep both of those species, and I'll try to keep them outside. Yeah. Um, really deep substrate. I'd set up a um, probably a waterfall inside the enclosure, make it like an eight foot long enclosure, eight foot long by about six six foot high. And um, set up a light trap over the top. Uh, so the bikes. light trap is where you've got a an incandescent light and a funnel, and just have it so that you have the light so it's uncovered, and so the the bugs fly down. They hit the hit the bulb, drop down into the funnel, fall through the funnel into the enclosure, get stuck in the enclosure, and then 
basically have that light trap on for a couple of hours each night um, mm. before. So you don't completely screw their photo period up. Um, yep. But it's on on long enough to, to be effective and have really deep substrate and and uh, have it set up so that they, they could always get cool. So um, Yeah, because they um, – But then at the yeah, same they're... time, I'm like, well, what's the point in having them when, you know, I can – drive down the road three and a half, four hours and, and whack the head torch on and go for a wander and we'll oh, see plenty yeah. of live berber and I might be lucky enough to see a um give it a colas. Yeah. That's my yeah. bucket list is to um photograph most of the leaf tails. That's one thing I'd I want to do. But um just gotta get out there and up there and do it. So I reckon you'd need about three weeks. Yeah. I reckon about th- I reckon about three weeks, and I reckon you'd knock it over. Pretty comfortable. Three weeks and a phone call to you. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, oh, death, I reckon three weeks and you'd knock them over. Yeah. Well, you got to get Just the only way to do it is to get out and do it. That's exactly right. So I can't wait for the kids to be a bit older and and do it. So, but um, yeah, those um, those five years, they're um, I think. There's a few in captivity. I think um, I saw Rick might have bred some recently. I think so. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so it's good to see someone actually producing some. So I think that everyone was I struggling. Think Rob just couldn't. I think he did as well years ago. But I think Rob Porter was the sure. first person to breed them. Yeah, he uh, he did the same um, with a few things. So, but um, bloody cold. Yeah, they kind of just. Like, you know, yeah, well, out there, where they're out in those rock outcrops, it gets below zero most nights. So, oh yeah, hundred. Well, it even snows. In, it does snow. Yeah, though. exactly. So, whew. yeah, uh, but um, well, I've seen both think, of them active in single, single digits. Well, my white berber, so, I used to keep them outside, and it would get below zero, and they'd still be hunting crickets. <laughs> that wouldn't surprise me at all. Yeah. So that were the only ones I kept outside. Um, um, but yeah, I'd go outside. It'd be zero, one, two degrees in the morning, and they're still out hunting. That was pretty cool to see. That's so. crazy. What What were you keeping them in outside? Like, can you just describe the enclosure and stuff that you were keeping them in? Because I haven't even heard that you were keeping them outside. This, this was is, so this is really interesting this was years me. ago. Um, pretty much, it was under under a um like a. Like a little pergola roof almost um, in a yep. big tub. And then basically it was just like a, a mesh basically fit like lid over the top. So they're pretty much in – they had a little bit of sun, but it was only for like a short period, so they never got too hot. They actually bred out yep. there as well. But, um, yeah, so it was essentially just like a tub with a, a, a mesh lid um, and just basically cork barks everywhere so they could hide wherever they want pick like it was a large i think the tub was probably i'm gonna say it's one of those real you know the real big heavy duty plastic ones from bunnings it was one of those so they're probably like i'd say almost a meter long so it was a huge tub so they had heaps of area but um yeah they thrived out there absolutely thrived got eggs they'd lay eggs like my female would drop like always drop a clutch same spot in the enclosure but yeah Cold temperatures, she'd be out hunting, so I'd always feed her. But that was pretty, That's inter- crazy. pretty interesting to see with those colder temperatures and actually see them out actively hunting in like one, two degrees. So, 
That's crazy. Well, I suppose I know one thing that is a little bit interesting, I suppose, that I'd never noticed before, but we came across a clutch of communal nesting in Saltuaris cornutus in North Queensland. Wow. I've never heard of that before. No. So that was something no. different. Um, so there was four eggs. Um, all appeared to be laid pretty much around the same time. Um, yeah. And one of the eggs was damaged. It had already been damaged at some point in time. And um, you could actually see the tail of the leaf tail hanging outside the egg. Wow. So, so, so that was, was something that was really unusual. So and it, and there was four eggs. So that's either. I mean, they, they don't. I don't. I know some people say that geckos have clutches of three. I've I've never known anyone to have a clutch of three. I've seen clutches of two, and I've seen I've the odd seen one where you've had three. a clutch of one. Yeah. I've never heard of never. You see it written in the literature, and I wonder if it's just a mistake or. Yeah. I don't know. I've never so, had more than two in anything that I've done. Have you had singles though, or not? I've had singles because I know some. I know some people that haven't had singles as well. I've I've had. I've We've had, had singles and, and yeah. I, I I haven't had singles, but you know I might have like one dud egg out of the clutch or something like that. But I've never had just yeah. one egg laid. I've yeah, had okay. singles from leaf so tails is... and cave geckos, and some ring tails as yeah. well. So that was the thing that was unusual. I mean, ringtails will just keep laying; they'll double, triple, oh yeah, clutch. Yeah, you know, once you once you got them up and going, as long as they've got the <laughs> yep, they don't stop. Legs, the psychotic fucking things <laughs> they are. Yeah, they are. <laughs> you type in the bloody week. Yeah, mate, they Horrible they live. Oh, like they love oh. a good munch. I'm not sure which are worse, them or shit if they uh, shit if they could act us, you know, like the cave geckos. Um, I'm, go- I'm going to say the cave, like cave geckos. Ge- they bite and they hold on. Oh, so do Cerdos. So I reckon the cave, they, for some reason, the cave geckos would always get you on a spot like like in between the fingers or like somewhere like that, like a real odd spot. They'd always get you there and hang on in like a real sensitive spot on your hand, whereas the the ringtails are just they just bite on like the tips of your fingers and hold on. So it never felt as as bad as the cave geckos, but those cave geckos they were I think the other thing is with the ringtails is um they don't stick to the glass, but those cave geckos, they're lightning fast and they'll just can stick to anything. So I think that was the other thing too. So you kinda of had to be quick. I had to always if I opened that enclosure, if I wasn't throwing cr- crickets in, I'd have to open it and either grab the female. Or Chuck Crickets in, shut the door. Because as soon as she saw that saw that door open, she'd bolt. And trying to catch her was an absolute nightmare. I think the only oh, that doesn't um, sound like much fun. I think the only geckos that are faster than bloody ringtail uh, ringtails. Um, I think ringtails are, are a bit quicker than than cave geckos, but cave geckos seem to be able to move. You know, do the whole matrix thing a bit better than um, than yeah. the ring ringies do. But I think the ones that have got them both beat are, are robust velvets. This new Belifera, yeah. they just, mm. they're horrible. Horrible yeah, things right. to keep. Um, I, I've never seen anything so fast. They were horrible things to, and remember that on those exoterras, you know how they've got the hinge and they've got that little yep. gap? The amount of times yep. that I had geckos that go out the 
Oh. Or you'd open the door and they'd yeah. like the door kind of hinges a bit off the glass and they'd wedge themselves just between the door and the and the glass. So you'd either you can't shut the door because if you shut the door, you're going to squash the gecko. Or they just just yep. stick their their toes just in the same spot without fail. The stroffs used to do it all the time. As soon as you open the door, they'd tuck into that little little hinge bit on the door. Okay. And, and people I'll like what, these geckos are. <laughs> <laughs> I love them. I love them. I've been half watching these guys all night. The um, silly Iris Aberrants that are just in here. These guys have become so habituated to me now that as soon as the door opens after the lights go out, they start running at the glass. So yeah, they're, uh, <laughs> they're they're little monsters. These things. Oh, they're, they're beautiful. Thoughts, silly Iris Aberrants are stunning. Yeah, uh, yeah, they're probably my favourite. I reckon the the colours that they they come in is just insane. What's your thoughts on this? Yeah, on the um, no, you're right. You go. No, you go for it. Oh, I was going to say, what's your thoughts on the spinigerous? Is did they get broken up into a subspecies, or do you still think it's one one species? Um, they've been the subspecies for a long time. You got. Spinigerous and then spinigerous in ornatus. Um, yeah. And it's all to do with the eye coloration, apparently. Um, I've only ever yeah. seen one of the subspecies in the wild. I've only seen the nominant one. Um, yeah. Very, very common around Perth. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. Yes, you see, and you'll see them in really cold, cold weather as well. Um, yeah. So whether they are. Are two different species. I'm I'm not quite sure. Um, or two different subspecies. They're they're certainly very common. Um, yeah. You know, an artist. I think I the only the... difference is the coloration of the eye. Isn't it? Yeah, I think. So. And then there's something to do with the dorsal stripes, not as prominent. I think on the back, as well. That's so I heard. But whether that's true or not, I've never saw those ones. I've just saw the spinigerous just around Perth because my sister-in-law lives over there. So. But um, but yeah, yeah some okay. of those stroffs. There's yeah, the, I have, I have a feeling there's a few more species there in some of those. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I I think um, I think there's definitely a few other other things out there. Um, yeah, that either already have names that that await further validation or uh, are, are awaiting names. So yeah. Um, no, there's there's a there's a lot of things out there, um, you know, particularly with the smaller stuff. Um, there's there's animals that you know have have evolved in in isolation, and then for whatever reason they've been separated from other things, and you know they can completely go on their own evolutionary trajectory. And mm. you know that the reality of it is is that they might be might be different species, but then whatever separated them may no longer be there anymore and now they've come back together and and, and there's gene flow again between those same two populations and, you know, that um, there's something for the evolutionary biologists to, to work out. Um, you know, a case in point, there was that paper that came out about children's pythons um, from oh, Damien yeah. Esquire and Steve Dinellon and co. Um, thinking... Uh, Seeking the species and subspecies of, of Stimsonii. So Stimsonii, Stimsonii, and Stimsonii orientalis got sunk into children eye. Um, yeah. 
and they subsequently also described a couple of subspecies for the spotted pythons and and described a new spotted python from uh, the Torres Strait slash um, slash New Guinea. Um, mm. I've only seen I haven't seen any of the animals from the Torres Strait or New Guinea, and um, so it would be difficult to make the comments on on those, but certainly from yep. the photos that people have put up of those, they, they do look a little bit distinct. But I wonder where the granite children's original granite spotted pythons originated from. Um yeah. I know they originated in the over overseas somewhere. So they could be a um they could be part of that northern northern group, I suppose. Um mm. so yeah. Which would maybe explain why they look a little bit different to the um, to the to the normal ones, I suppose, normal spotted. Um, yeah, I've got a fair bit of Certainly, a very interesting it, so. paper. Yeah, I'm only halfway through it. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, it's good. I love reading that. I mean, I don't understand half of the stuff in it, but I do love reading them. I've I've got a lot of them saved in my bookmarks on my phone, so. Um, it's good to just have a flick through every now and then. But some of the, like when they start talking about the DNA stuff, goes a little bit over my head, but I definitely enjoy reading those papers. That's way above my pay grade, but nonetheless, it was good to have a bit of a flick through it and get a general understanding about what they were talking about. Well, it's going to be, make it interesting for the um, for the legislators, I suppose, isn't it? You know, what are they going to do yeah. with all these animals that yeah. were... Formerly children's and, you know. I mean, that's the thing. Like, the, you know, that's, how do they keep up with all these changes on the, like on all the licensing and everything? So in Queensland they use, you know, when you fill out your movement advice, it says you use the, the scientific name as per X, you know. So that's yep. what that's what you should be using. Um, mm. You know, so subsequently, you know, they update it eventually and then, you know the name name changes. I suppose um, other states have got different things. I mean, I don't think there'd be a mangrove monitor in the country that would be correctly uh, would have the correct scientific name in anyone's books. Everyone's yeah. using Indicus at the moment, but there's no Indicus in Australia. They're all chlorostigma. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, and you know that paper came out in a. Uh, in a Varana journal uh, from Germany, I think it was, for memory. Um, and, you know, I was reading through another Varana paper and it made reference to something else and so that took me down that rabbit hole. And next thing you know, I'm reading through it. Oh, yeah, and and Indicus now is restricted to Ambon. Everything else is now Chlorostigma. Oh, yeah, okay, the Australian ones are Chlorostigma as well. Right, okay. Um Nobody's using the name Chlorostigma. Why aren't they using it? Oh well, they they weren't aware of it yet. So yeah, suddenly the paper comes out, people get across it, and then people start to use it, and and it comes in, and then people will be going, well, yeah, ten years down the track, everyone will know the Australian Indicus is probably as Chlorostigma by then. Um, yeah, but it could be like chondros too, and you know, you're using yeah, exactly chondropython as a genus name from twenty years ago. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, the New South Wales species list still uh, lists uh, Stimson I as Liasis. Oh, good work. Good work. 
Yeah. And there um, wasn't Maritzi on the list either. So they were like when they were kicking around heaps, they were all under Swaney. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah well, a, a few things New South Wales could be doing better. Uh, look, I think on the other side of it, though, too, we've, we've got to remember as, as, as reptile hobbyists, um, you know, we live and breathe this sort of stuff. That's right. You know, from whereas it's just a job from for their some point of, of view. Stuff. This is, yeah, and, and it's and it's not fair to say it's a, just a job for them. Yeah, that's all true. The time, you know, but the cert- yeah. certainly for some for some people that it is a job, and mm. you know they they are going to to try and go down what the letter of the law is as per, and you know they they don't want to live and breathe it, you know, every day, you know, yeah. whereas. You know, we're 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 reading papers and, and things like that, um, well and truly outside of our normal hours. So, so, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What what was that? A photo that you just sent through of Scott? Is that what Shroffers is that? Is that an aberrant? I didn't even see that one. No, that's spidigerous. That I was going to say, yeah. Right, right. Oh, I can give you an yeah. aberrant. You want an aberrant? What? I'll send you an aberrant. Yeah, why not? Amaranth is stunning. Do you know what kind of tr- yeah? Do you know what kind of tree that that spinacheris is actually sitting in? Yes, yes, I've got a photo of it with the um, with the flowers and everything. Um, it was quite a pretty tree. Yeah, right. Um, it was a form of uh, banksia. So uh, yeah, okay. Let me, you see, why can't I see it? They do make a good display gecko, oh. the Strafiris. Oh, man, I'm, I'm absolutely in love with these things. I'm so glad that I got them up here too because I spend countless hours watching them at night now just yeah, you know, watching them move around like even just now, just watching them going in between different positions, searching for food and getting all over the joint. They're, uh, they're awesome little geckos. Yeah. I'm, um, I'm, I'm pretty glad my guys haven't taken to pooing on the glass yet. So. Oh, you're lucky. <laughs> Usually strops, strops are pretty good for that. But. That's a good thing about my chameleon geckos. They'd always poo in the same corner of the tank. It was great. Oh, that's a stunner. Yeah. I must admit, that's that's the one thing with um, golden tail geckos. You know, I, I've never seen I've seen lots of golden tail geckos out in the bush, and you know they always are so much prettier in the bush than they are in captivity. They always seem to lose that orange in captivity. Do you think that's got to do with UV, the right type of UV, or do you just think it's maybe something to do with being captive bred? I think it's got something to do with uh, lighting and yeah. and captivity. I think it's both. Yeah. Uh, so because I mean they're, they're always the, because the eyes. Sorry, go on. No, you're right. The eyes too seem to dull off in captivity as well. Yeah, it's not just the tail. Um, the captive ones seem to have eyes that are a little bit more yellow uh, as well. So, you know, we we kept them. The ones that we got, we got some captive bred ones from uh, Rob Porter many many years ago, and they were, you know, about an inch long or so, and they had these little yellow eyes and these little yellow tails, and I was like, what the hell's going on here? Yeah. Um, because previous to that, I'd only ever seen, yeah, bright orange and, um, yeah. So, 
Um, but they're they're probably one of the prettiest geckos that are, that are getting around the, the golden tail geckos. That's for sure. Yeah, um, Def- yeah, they definitely are. Definitely. Are. I, I had a pair of them, a pair of them a little while ago that I got off Rick, and they were absolutely stunning. He had some gorgeous ones. They they had like that full red eye, you know, the real bright, vivid yellow tail as well. You know, you see some of them getting around. I'm pretty sure there's another subspecies of tenacorder, if I'm not there's mistaken, as well two. that has a bit more of like a silvery eye. There's two. There's yeah, that's albiocularis, yeah. and yeah, yep. and then you've got the bartail, which is tenacorder troyorius. Um, so, you know, Troyorius are, are quite different and the um, the white-eyed golden tails are, are quite different as well. Um, yeah, I had all There is another one that's, that's a bit different as well. Yeah, I've heard about that one. Um, so they've got funny spots on them. Yeah. They're, they're quite yeah, unusual. That, that's in, spots are quite it's in the book, isn't it? Um, I think we. I, think I don't know. We might have a photo of in Danny's book. Yeah, I think it's in Danny's. Danny's the big, the actual big gecko, the big lizard book. Sorry, I think it's in that book because I remember reading about it. Yeah, oh they, they're certainly. Um, yeah, um, for the poor people that aren't in the chat that we've got going on, on, on putting up photos of of all four of them. Um, <laughs> so we might be able to put, we might be able to throw those in somewhere that, that people can see them on your Facebook page or something like that. Yeah, if you don't mind, we'll um, just yeah, share yeah. some of these pictures. Like obviously these gecko ones on the um on the Instagram and Facebook, so people I'll, can see um, what we're actually talking about because they're spectacular. We'll give yeah, you credit I'll to throw some, on there. I'll throw some watermarks on them so you can throw them up. So, yeah, yeah, that'd be good. Um, yeah, but yeah, that and send it through. So there's all four just there. So the one that's sitting on the black wattle, which is the brown stick, that's the 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 other one, so to speak. Yeah, it's got the tiny little spots on it. Um, yep. Uh, the one that's sitting on the uh, obviously you got the white-eyed golden tail, it's sort of a little bit greenish. Your Trioreus that's sitting on the bark, and then you've got the the nominate there that's sitting on that uh, that bit of wattle. So yeah. Um, Pretty incredible yeah, geckos, that's for sure. Darning geckos. I think we're we're kind of spoiled for choice, really. Yeah. With geckos, I mean most yeah. most of our stuff's pretty pretty good looking. So these kind of photos so, is really oh. dangerous for me because now I want to go down a stroporous wormhole. Just hit up Rick. <laughs> <laughs> no, he already talks to me enough. Going, what else can I put in your yeah. hands? You know, it's a bit, it's dangerous being friends with that man. Yeah. But well, no, I had, you can, I had you can really go do yourself a nasty. You can really do yourself a nasty and go down the Oajura, Oajura hole, or or one of the many to. others that are out there as well. I started. To. Yeah, well, I, yeah. When when I last picked up these aberrants off Rick, I ended up getting my arm twisted into a pair of fimbria as well, little fimbria hatches. So that's kind of yep. happening. Yeah, well, I think, you know, even just in, in Marmorata itself, I mean, Marmorata's been split into a few things now. There's probably yeah. going to be a few more splits to go. But, um, you know, tire and eyes, there's a there's a whole heap of tyrons out there and Monolith has got a whole heap of different things going on in it as well and, and a few other things. But, you know, even in Nefurus, there's some of those Nefurus, there's some um, 
you know, the genetics is that uh, the difference between, I think it's Filberensis and Lavis is the same as what it is between Shai and um, Amyo. So, wow. you know, there's probably yep. an argument there to say that it maybe should be elevated at some point in time, but, you know, someone will need to do the work. Further, further work on that to, to look at it. But there's all sorts of stuff out there. And then don't get me started on skinks and stuff like that, which is really exciting as well. as all sorts of interesting stuff in skinks. So. Well, you never know if you do start. You know, I know there's a few skink nuts out there. People like uh, Paul Tamas and Marcus Healy would probably be pretty keen to hear some uh, Tanoferous talk. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I've, I've known Paul for – this is on you when I was living down in Vic. So um, he's been keeping lizards a very, very long time, but a very good keeper for a very long time as well. So, you know, if you, if you want someone to breed breed a skink, um, Paul's probably a pretty good candidate to hand it to, that's for sure. So, um, yeah. no, sorry, I think uh, he had some yeah. yakas going this year. Wouldn't surprise me. Wouldn't surprise yeah. me. I mean, I. That 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 Agernia, Lyophilus, Lysolepis, Bellatorius group have got some amazing animals in it. Um, yeah, we don't we don't have the um, the, the wallet that that, that yakas require. <laughs> so, um, you know, I'd love to keep them. You know, one day when I've got some more money and all the rest of it and some time. But um, yeah, you know we've. We've kept and bred, you know, mages and um, land mullets and, and quite a few of the different, uh, well, they're going to be species at some point in time in the Cunninghams. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we we do like those those bigger skinks. Um, we like the, the fact that, you know, you don't have to, you can sort of feed them a fairly varied diet, which is nice. And, um, you know, where we are, the, the keeping of them is is fairly conducive to being keeping them outside. So um, we kept king skinks for a long time, but we were never successful with them for whatever reason. We could never never breed them. I don't know why. We we had what we thought were compatible pairs and all the rest of it, but for whatever we did, we could never never seem to crack them. So um, we ended up giving them to a friend what of ours you- down south. What what are you feeding your skinks out of? Just a matter of interest, like what sort of diet? Um, so it varies. Um, so yeah. we use a a Vetifarm pellet that gets blended up, and we mix that with uh, water and dog food, mm-hmm. and it's like a, a slurry sort of a mix. So they get they get that, and then we add calcium to that as well, uh, and vitamins to yep. it, and I say I do. Ty does all this, not me. At all. So she does all the hard work. <laughs> and take her credit. Um, but but yeah, so she puts all that together and runs around, and they just they pig out on it, um, and it it goes really well. Every now and then we'll mix it up and throw some insects in there, and or we'll just go straight fruit or straight dog food, or you know some mice. We we breed our own rats and mice, so we'll do. Pinkies every now and then, rat pups and stuff like that. With you know a bit of variety is good, so mix it up a bit. Yep. I've been trying to find some um, 
like cricket meal or cricket powder essentially to start adding into some of my monitor mix that I do. I do kind of like a, a mix of uh, turkey mince, a cat, cat pellet, um, some vitamin powders and, and calcium powders. But, yeah, I wanted to try to get some of this. One of my mates, Kurt, he managed to get some bags for pretty cheap from one of the supermarkets. It was like a cricket powder or a cricket protein powder or something like that that he kind of ended up putting into his monitor mix, which I thought was quite interesting, but I haven't been able to find any myself. I think it's in some of the health food shops. You can get yeah, usually you can get those insect meals. Yeah, okay. You can yeah, find it so, online too sometimes as well. Yeah, I might have to start looking outside the box. We've um, we've also used things like um, mutton bird oil and stuff like that in the past, and you know some of yep. the oils and stuff like that. Which whether it works, I don't know. You know um, we also use um, egg yolk. Every now and then as well yep. sometimes it's probably the egg yolk and stuff. Um, crack eggs in enclosures and particularly for the goannas as well, you know, chook eggs and, and stuff like that. Um, you sort of yep. drop them from a bit of height so they, they break. Um, yeah. And then they'll go through and they'll lap them up. Um, they love that. The advantage of that sometimes. Well, the other thing that sort of happens quite well as well is that um, you get uh, – Flies and stuff like that will come in. So every now and then sometimes you can, by cracking eggs into enclosures where, you know, the, the skinks may not necessarily eat the, the the egg like that. They'll come after the flies and uh, mm. things like that, particularly with like younger gurnia and stuff like that where you've got, um, yeah, the babies are much more insectivorous than the, than the adults. The, yep. the babies are chasing around flies and that sort of stuff, so. Another draw card. Yeah. yeah it's interesting. Mm. I think I've, I've noticed that with uh, even my Cunninghams outside every now and then when I give it a bit of a treat with dog food or something, you know, your half gets drawn to the other sort of critters and stuff that get drawn to the dog food as well, you know, whether that be other little bugs and beetles and stuff like that. I see him coming and picking those off occasionally. Yeah, I think, I think you know, again, a bit of variety is good for the animals, isn't it? So, Most definitely, yeah. Yeah. Um, do you, you, know, do you mix like any from, vegetables in with that? Yes, yes, and dandelions and things like that as well. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. I might let the lawns get a bit longer sometimes and go around and rip up all the dandelions and get them in a bucket and and then sort of mix that up and through and, um, you know, uh, uh, flowers as well. Some flowers are they seem to really get excited for. So, yeah. I just had a storm going at the moment. Is it cracking down where you guys are at the moment, is it? I can hear that. I thought it was on you guys. It sounded like thunder or something. Well, hey. Yeah, I heard that. I was like, oh, someone's we, got a We literally got – I lifted my thing before. I was like, what the hell was that? Yeah, that's what I – because I keep muting my mic. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's loose. Not here. Oh, okay. It doesn't sound like it's from me. I, I could be wrong. You, mate. I don't think, <laughs> I, think it's are, you. I don't I don't think these things are noise yeah. cancelling. Yeah. Oh well, that's all right. A bit of ambiance. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So I'm looking oh, forward to your um your lizard book coming out, so add another one to the yeah, collection. Yeah, so am I. 
So am I. So, um, oh no, it's here. It is here. Oh, the rain is here. It is something down here. <laughs> there you go. Absolutely something down here. We had it all day. Um, that's all right. It's uh, looks like it's a cracker of a song too. There you go. Um, Lizard book we were talking about. We were, sorry, I completely got so We're talking about your book. We're just starting to talk about your book. <clears throat> yeah. So, um, lizard book at the naturalist guide. So the the whole idea of that is we don't cover every single species in it, but we cover two hundred and eighty of Australia's sort of most iconic, commonly encountered type species, um, along with a few few standouts. Um, we like varanids, so we may have put made sure that we had every single species of goanna in there. Um, mm-hmm. And well, that'll keep you know, there's a bit, yeah. yeah, so uh, there's a few things in there. There's there's unpublished photos of varanus spanus in there, and oh, nice. a few other things that yeah, that you know, we want to want to make sure that there's something in there for the herpes out there, as opposed to just yeah. the more general general people. Um, yeah. But the whole idea of that series, I suppose, was that there's a series of books that was put out by Graham Gow, Steve Swanson, and John Cairn um, mm-hmm. back in the, the late 70s, early 80s. It's um, so a grey series of books. Um, the, those sort of ones there. And I had I them as a kid growing up. And, yeah. And, you know, they've been... Awesome books um, and something that I suppose there wasn't really in the market. There wasn't something like that in the market anymore for the kids growing up. You only had sort of Wilson and Swan, which are fantastic, but yeah, for some parents maybe 50 bucks or 60 bucks is a little bit more than what they were willing to pay. So mm. um, we had this opportunity to do, first off I did the Dangerous Creatures book with a, a bloke by the name of Peter Rowland, and um, that led on to the frog book, which I did with him. And then uh, we said, well, well, while we're at it, why don't we do snakes? And they said, that's a good idea. And um, so we set out to do a book that uh, covers every species of snake, every species of frog, um, but it's worded in such a way that you don't need to be a scientist to, to understand it. And, um you know, it gives you basically the, the rundown on how to pick them apart without being a, a, a full-on field guide. Um, yeah. But we're able to keep the cost down at 25 bucks a book. So, um, yeah. So the lizard book is the is the next logical one in the series. So we ended up doing the lizard book as well, and you know we're we're pretty happy with it. So, um, you know, it's can't wait for that. Lots and lots of pictures and yeah. a lot of fun, and you know, yeah. Fun and games. So, yeah, I just yeah. got. Now we get the, to start. Um, get. Are uh, no, you right? No, you're right. Go for it. Oh no, I was just going. No, I was going to talk about this. That's no, right. You go. Keep going. We um, you know, now we start to get our life back together <laughs> and yeah. catch up on all the things that we've been waiting to do. So, yeah, I can only imagine um, how busy that is. Oh, it's a lot of work. I mean, they're only a small book, you know. They. Yeah, and I think there are about eighty thousand words. So, you know, by the time you you write it and review it, and you know, we send it all out to get peer reviewed as well. So, yeah, um, 
you know, they'll come up with changes as well. So then we incorporate those changes and it's always a, a character building exercise. So, um, <laughs> and then when the when the publishers do their layouts, then you get to fix all the errors that they make. Um, yeah. And find them and, you know, you'd wonder why and how they, they make some of the errors that they make, but. And it's there, yeah, exactly. I mean, I, it's I, fun. I could only imagine how much work goes into producing a book with all the fact checking and everything else. All the not to mention all the like the photographs as well. It's a lot of work. How do you go about Yeah. Do you, do you have to contact a whole bunch of friends that have been out in the field for their photos of particular species, or like how do you go about um, that? So in the snake book, obviously we we had our own list of stuff that we had, and then mm. obviously we go out with friends and stuff like that. So we had a a list of stuff that the friends could sort of help us out with pretty quickly, and then um, slowly but surely you start to cut down where you, there ain't too many people that have got photos of this, that, or the other, and yeah, um, that's when it starts to get difficult. So um, chasing up those those that last ten percent is is about ninety percent of the work, I suppose. Yeah. Um, yeah. The lizard book wasn't too bad because, you know, in obviously, you know, I don't just I photograph a lot of um, obviously a lot of wild stuff, but I'm also I, I don't mind taking photos of, of captive animals as well. So, you know, I've been lucky enough to, to photograph some uh, some pretty cool critters. Um, in captivity that people have had and, you know, I've, I've never been to, to Moa Island but I've been able to photograph presidents on a couple of occasions and right. I've been able to photograph That'd this and the other yeah. stuff. Yeah. yeah. They're a beautiful lizard too. Absolutely stunning lizard. I can only imagine. It's like a, they are literally like a fluorescent green, you know. It's Yeah, because there's a few well, people work with them, isn't there? In Queensland, yeah, I've, I mean Aaron Hopper seems to be doing really well up in North Queensland with him. Dave, yeah, um, and he keeps Dave, him outside, Dave, I believe, Dave, as well, doesn't he? I think so. I think so. Yeah, he, and Green um, Tree Pythons. I think we spoke about him on the first podcast about the way he keeps his stuff. Yeah, he's, yeah. Uh, what's he call himself? A grass is greener. Grass is greener. Yeah, Maybe. yeah, uh, yeah. Unreal. Yeah, they're um, unreal. Dave, David Evans has some as well, doesn't he? Yeah, I think so. I yeah. think so. I think he's got some. Does Joe there. Ball have some as well? I think. Um, so I think there's a fair few kicking around, which is good to see. And a, I've seen a couple of other people pop up with maybe just single animals as well. So, yeah. I'd say there's a few out there. Um, mm. you know, the, um, there's a look. I've seen them in a couple of different collections and. You know, they're, they're amazing animals to look at. Um, they're one of those animals that, that photos really don't do them justice. Yeah. Um, so. Like water pythons. But, yeah. Oh, definitely. Some of the water mm. pythons are gorgeous. Yeah. So. Oh, this, oh, I definitely love yeah. my water pythons. Making me want to go hurt. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's mm. cold time of year, so, you know, I mean, Depends on what you're going to go looking for. So, yeah, not much. Um, 
Oh, you'll still be able to see a few frogs getting Yeah, I can hear a few when I go outside when it rains, but, um, but yeah, down the road. It's a really good time for the sodophrony at this time of year. So your yeah. autumn breeders and your, your winter breeders, so things like um, sodophrony, semi-marmorata, the southern toadlets, uh, they'll be calling out in full course. The, um, the crinia are in full chorus now. Um, Geocrinia will be going. There'll be a, and then a few of the um, things like Ewing Eye and uh, Little John's Tree Frog and Watson's Tree Frog and all of those will be going at this time of year as well. So looking for those winter storms. I always love, yeah. I always love uh, love the red crown toadlets. They're they're a favourite for me to find. Pain in the bum, but I get them not far from my house. Probably about fifteen minute drive from my house, and uh, yeah. You spend a good night just trying to find a few males calling there. Get lucky if you see a girl. They um they live for an incredible long time. So I think they've got oh, one really? of the records yeah. of longevity. I think it's about twenty seven or twenty eight years, I think. Wow. Uh, it's so crazy considering you're yeah, you're talking a frog that's, you know, what, fifteen to twenty mil long. Well, they're not a big mm. frog. No, they're Tiny. a beautiful little frog. Um we found one a few years ago that um, was either missing its whole arm or half its arm, and it was still kicking around as an adult and doing fine. Um, yeah, you know, they they seem to be seem to be a quite an amazing sort of an animal, that's for sure. Yeah, people always, you know. Um, it's it's something that's not common in the in the actual reptile hobby and or the amphibian hobby in Australia is like the real tiny stuff like that. You know, you don't see a lot of those guys kicking around. Like I've, it took me a while to find out uh, find some commonest and froglets just to to have here as pets. Um, I think the hard part is is trying to get them to eat. A lot of people struggle with um, with getting the meeting, I suppose, and, mm. and that might be. Half your battle there. Um, yeah. Certainly, the sodophrony in captivity. Um, many years ago, there used to be a few places that that had southern toadlets, sodophrony, uh, semi marmorata. Um, I kept them twenty five years ago um, when I was living in Vic. A beautiful little frog, and um, I ended up. Uh, letting the enclosure get a little bit too dry, and ended up. Killing him, um, which, yeah. which was a bit of a shame, but mm-hmm. you know, what do you do? And uh, mistakes we make, and, and yeah, yeah exactly. that was that. So that was the end of it for us. Um, but there was a, a couple of places that did used to keep them, and I, I don't know if they still do. That's a, did you, did you ever breed yours? No, no, I was not successful in breeding them. Um, you know, knowing what I know now, you know, I, I kept them all completely wrong, I suppose. Um, I didn't have the leaflet anywhere near deep enough to what they needed. Um, yeah. And I think that if I was to, to keep them, try and keep them again, if I was ever given that opportunity, um, I would set them up in a, in a fish tank, I suppose, mm-hmm. but have 80% of the fish tank as, as leaf litter and substrate. Um, wow. and only have quite a, a short spot on the top so they could get down and then make sure that I had a spot down the bottom where it was 
basically wet and then and then wet. come up and then actually flood the enclosure in in autumn. Yeah. Um, yep. Or just before autumn, start to bring the water level up. Hopefully, that would get them calling uh, along with misting and introduce the females. Hopefully, get them to make their chamber and then um, you know once got eggs, then bring the water up so it covers the covers the eggs and the 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 egg masses uh, uh, turns into the, the eggs themselves then degrade and then the, the tadpoles hatch out, no dramas. So, you know, they're, they're quite an interesting frog in that they're a terrestrial developer. So, yeah. so you, you've got to have that flood system that comes up and yeah. get the eggs to go. It's amazing the diversity of reptiles and amphibians we actually have in Australia considering how arid some of the country yeah, is definitely. and, like, it's insane. Yeah. yeah, well, the other thing is, too, is the size of the um, the males versus the females. The um, the males are about, you know, two-thirds of the size to, to half the size of the females, too. So, you know, when you're talking a frog that a female is 25 millimetres long, um, mm. the male is, is 15 millimetres long and then trying to find small crickets and things like that that they like to eat at that yep. size can sometimes be a bit of a challenge. Um, yeah. So that was my biggest problem with the crinia is to, yeah, try to find baby crickets or extra small crickets. Or, you know, when I had quite a few animals here, I'd be buying a bulk extra small crickets and, you know, you get a couple of feeds out of them no, they... before that goes, then you, they've gotten too big. They could start eating the frogs. Yeah. 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 Um, and you know, I mean, they're they're an awesome little critter. Um, you know, sort of offering you a, a really underrated little frog out there, that's for sure. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I do like frogs. I, I find them they're they're a lot like fish in a lot of ways. Um, and you know, as a result, you know, things can go sideways incredibly quickly. Really uh, quick, yeah. To, when it comes to keeping them so you know um once you've got them set up and they're doing what they need to do awesome but but uh things can go sideways way too fast mm. yeah so. mm. fun and games not for everybody yeah exactly yeah <laughs> no. anyway all right well all right it's been over two hours well over two hours a long one, a long one. nice yeah we talked about a hell of a lot of stuff. Yeah, that's, that's good. Sure. The thing is, we could keep I talking. I can't remember what we started off about. Neither. I could yeah. just keep talking. Grid Connect. Or listening, at least, anyway. That's it. Grid Connect. What to yeah. do in the field, what not to do in the field. Yeah, definitely. No, that's good. <laughs> of course. Well, thank you so much yeah, for jumping in. Thanks, on, heaps. Scott. That was. Um, Thanks for being our first guest. No doubt you'll probably get you back on at some other point to talk about some other topic or, you know, let us know when your book's out and we'll plug it for you as well as much as we well, can. Grand, greatly appreciate it, guys. And, um, you know, have, you know, good luck with the podcast. I'm sure you guys are going to really take the ball and run with it. And, um, you know, I think we're going to have to, at some point in time, you're going to have to get to do a bit of a get-together or something like that maybe before one of the expos. definitely. Maybe do a um yeah, maybe do a question and answer session with some of the people at one of the expos one time. I think that oh, that's definitely get a few people on. That'd be yeah, cool. Definitely. Yeah. Go for a herp too. 
five minute, the five minute yeah. rundown, quick chat, chat type things, you know. So, yeah, a couple you know, of quick. But you know that's all bullshit because you never get to. Well, you never get to spend five minutes talking to another hurt. It it's never five minutes. Always, always. But that's the joys of it, though. Yeah. Stuck in the eye rolls from the wife. Come on, can we go home? Here? Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm just going to not take my wife to the expo. So. Yeah, that might be yeah. easier. Well, my wife being a herp, it's it's um it's good fun in that sense. So you know <laughs> we we both get sidetracked on conversations at times. Oh, I can imagine. It's, it's I can imagine. Yeah. But yeah, no, thanks. Definitely yeah, make it easier. Up, yeah, but thanks heaps, Scott. Um, a wealth of knowledge. No, Scott. It's definitely um oh, sorry, great mate. to talk to you. So definitely keen for this book to go yeah, out. So add another one. Well, one of the things yeah. is too with. One of the things with knowledge and stuff like that is that, you know, as, as much as as long as I've been keeping animals, you know, I, I know bugger all. Um, you can always learn from from people that are coming through, and Definitely. you know, the minute that you start to close off your ideas to to other people is the the minute that you start to to close yourself off from knowledge. So exactly, you know, the, the one thing that I'd like to always try and do is is be willing to explore new ideas and not try and be too set in my ways and, you know, because the minute that you start to think that you've got your head around on something is the minute that the animals turn around and completely show you something else to, to throw you through the works. So, yep. yeah. It's when you think of everything dialed and then you can learn something from that's a new it. keeper. You can learn something from someone that's been doing it for 30, 40 years. You're always, yep. you basically never stop learning. That's probably one of the best bits of advice that anyone can get given is, just listen to everyone. Take everything on board. I reckon it's the best part about the hobby. It's just so much fun to to just keep learning. You exactly. Know? I think we're all kind of similar in that sense where we just want to have that thirst for knowledge and and love what we do. So, yeah. Never I think you've got, to enjoy, you've got to enjoy yourself and have some fun with it, don't you? Exactly. Exactly. Yep. But then one hobby yeah, turns 100%. into another. You, you have reptiles and then all of a sudden, now you're starting to collect reptile books. So... The thirst that just keeps going. Now you're starting to, you're starting to collect plants and learn about native plants. Exactly. <laughs> just, but, that, but that's the thing, you know. You get someone like um, I was listening. Yeah, I, well, I was listening to um, uh, Phil Wolf on the um, Herpetoculture podcast, and he's getting some rinkholes, which are yep. a, a South American, oh, South, South American, South African species of of spitting spitting cobra. Um, and he's talking about, I'm going to make sure that I set this enclosure up and I'm getting photos of the backdrop and then he's going to try and get the right plants to go in there and, and this, that and the other to try and make sure that he's he's copying a piece of South Africa. So he's got a piece of South Africa in his, in his room for his wrinkles. So um, I, I suppose that's where, where you can go. You can take this as exactly. far or, or as far as you want to take it. You can go to that, that point or you can... Yeah, right. This is how I'm going to keep the animal. I'm going to do it like this, and I'm going to take care of its its welfare and all the rest of it. So, yeah, um, I think that's the best thing about it, and that's the curse and the the blessing of social media, isn't it? That you can that's right. You can talk to people from one side of the globe to the other, and and uh, and yeah, and learn and, and get excited about all sorts of stuff. Yeah, that's the the best thing about it. I reckon a lot of a lot of negatives, but there's a lot of, also a lot of positives. So. Yeah. Anyway, 
Never stops. All right. Well, we might uh, wrap it up and call it a night, eh? Sounds good. Thanks, guys. Thanks, heaps, Scott. Thanks, Scott. We'll talk to you soon and we'll grab those photos off you to show. Uh, all yeah, make things. sure you chuck your watermark on them too. So. I'll yeah. sort it out in the next day or so. Yep. Sounds, sounds, sounds good. Sounds good, mate. Awesome. Thank you again. All righty. You can you want to do the outro there, Luke? Yeah, no worries. Uh, so, guys, we'd just like to say thanks to Eric and Owen and the rest of the NPR crew for having us. If you'd like to contact them, it's best to find them at moreliapythonradio.com and email them at info at moreliapythonradio.com. As far as contacting us and our social media platforms, you can email us at australiaherpticulture at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as well. To see more of what Jason is doing, make sure to follow him at uh, on Facebook and Instagram at The Gecko Effect. For myself, you can find me on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Patreon, and Teespring under Beach of Scaly Beasts. We hope to have you back next week for another episode of the Australian Herpticulture Podcast. And if you want to chuck your contact details out there as well, Scott, if you want your Facebook page or whatever. Yeah, if people want to get in contact with us, shoot us a, a message at Nature for You on Facebook or shoot us up, uh, hit us up on the website, um, www wildlifedemonstrations.com Excellent. Thanks for listening, everyone, and you'll hear from us again next week. Enjoy the podcast, everyone. Thanks. Bye.